the most bizarre passage for me personally in the Bible that I ever read says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Giants were on the earth in these days? That is a theological storyline that goes throughout the whole Bible. Modern Western minds and eyes are not understanding the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. There's no giants in the Gospels, right? Well, actually, yeah, there are. There were five other giants who were also hunting David. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against heavenly powers, spiritual principalities. The Bible says a lot about giants. Welcome back to an episode of Conspiracy Conversation. This is actually the second part. It's a follow-up to a previous episode that we've done. I'm so thankful that you're with us and, and uh, enjoying this. If this is your, your, your first time ever, I hope you love it. Uh, I think that think that you that you will. We try to take a minute, just kind of stretch your mind, maybe expose you to ideas that uh, you haven't heard of before. Sometimes we're talking about JFK assassination or or different things. We get into ancient stuff and buildings and just kind of kind of kicking over rocks and seeing what's under there. But one of the criteria is we try to have uh, authors and, and and speakers and people that have spent thousands of hours churning through these concepts and ideas in private and then bring them into public in a way that maybe can bring you know you more understanding, myself as well. I took so many notes on the first uh, episode of, of this part here. So honored to have uh, today's guest. Um, had a huge impact on our whole family uh, the first time he was on. We've been getting, consuming his content uh, ever since that episode. Uh, Amazon bestseller of the Chronicles of the Nephilim. He's a screenwriter of uh, a movie called called The End uh, to End All Wars, starring Kiefer Sutherland. He's done a little bit of of everything. And uh, welcome back to part two of Conspiracy Conversations, Brian Gadawa. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's great to be here as I adjust all my, my computer stuff. Uh, it's, yeah, it's great to be here. And, and it was a great time. You know, I really appreciate you giving me all that time. And it, I felt like I, I promoted it as, honestly, it was the best, my, my personal best summary of the Nephilim Watcher paradigm that I've, uh, of course, you know, been writing about for decades. So... <laughs> It was it was a, a great conversation. I just it's it's one as soon as we were done like that night at dinner, we were talking about it. I woke up the next morning talking about it. You have such a unique gift to not only understand uh complex things, to tie together scripture in a chronological way that makes sense for people that maybe are new to it, or people maybe are so familiar with it that they have created little blind spots based on the what the flannel graph had on when they were in Sunday school or something. You know, it's kind of they didn't might not tie something together because they're like, I know that and I've not looked at it. So it was good for for all of us. I'll tell you one thing we did um my wife went on a road trip for uh, a women's conference right after our show. She's listening to uh, ep, you know book one of, of your series on on Noah, and um, man, she she's like this guy is a genius and stuff. And I'm like, man, okay, our son actually is is a certified genius. He has a, took a test and passed the genius. I made him, and we've never been called that. And uh, you are now a certified genius by my wife. So I think that's a uh, it's, it's it's pretty rare rare air uh, to be in. Congratulations. Tell her she, she is too kind. And, <laughs> and that's literally true. That's far too kind. Those are great. You do the voices, you do all of them. I want to, before we jump in, I want to play the commercial for the first episode. If you guys missed that or have not seen it, you can go back and watch it at any time. This one is a standalone, it'll be great for you as well. But we kind of broke down the seed of the serpent 
versus the seed of Eve and, and how this ties together. I'll play you the, the trailer for the last episode. The most bizarre passage for me personally in the Bible that I ever read says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Giants were on the earth in these days? That is a theological storyline that goes throughout the whole Bible. Modern Western minds and eyes are not understanding the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. There's no giants in the Gospels, right? Well, actually, yeah, there are. There were five other giants who were also hunting David. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against heavenly powers, spiritual principalities. The Bible says a lot about giants. That was awesome. Get your website on the bottom of the screen. But for those of you that are on a treadmill or mowing your grass or whatever you're doing today, it's godawa.com. That's G-O-D, like God, G-O-D, then A-W-A. G-O-D-A-W-A.com. Uh, just basically using that. You can find him about everywhere. Brian Gadawa on, on Twitter is another great spot, great place to be able to track his work. And uh, again, Amazon bestseller. How many books have you have you written total now? Oh, over 20, 20 some odd books about 16 novels or so. And what I tend to do is, you know, I've always been, I've, I've always been a bipolar person where I, I'm, I love art and I love drama and I love storytelling. And in some ways I love how that captures truth just as well, if not better at times than a sermon or a book, but I love books. I love philosophy. I love the mental side of things. And so I've always been interested in both. So even though I, I write my, even though I feel that my novel series is the best incarnation of the theological truths I'm trying to communicate, I recognize that there are a lot of people, Christians specifically, who really want, they really like to see, you know, prove to me from the Bible or, you know, from your research where you're getting this. I, I, you know, they like that sort of, and I don't blame them because I've, I've been like that myself, you know, show me where this is in the Bible type of thing. And so I love writing the theolo- I write theological books mm-hmm. that sort of back up, uh, you know, uh, the actual novels themselves. So hopefully there's enough for, for both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. If you're one of those people that are today are like, okay, that's, that's a neat story, but I'm kind of more into the Bible study. You know, we can check those boxes as well. And he's kind of broken those things down. I'd like to ask you this question for those of you that may be wondering from the first episode, or uh, if you're jumping into this for the first time, if, if, if you think something or you have an idea, something might be a certain way, what holds the highest authority, the way that you think it is, or the actual Bible? Yeah. For you personally, you know, I for mean, me personally, yeah, I mean, where because be like, hey, people write about these things. They did a they did a movie version of Noah. You know, I don't know if the yeah. Bible was the highest level of authority. It was it was neat, a Russell Crowe and so forth. But uh, how does that fall for you? What where does the Bible rank as far as authority yeah. in this narrative? It always has been. I I come from a sort of a boring, typical evangelical background. So um, the Bible, and I retain. You know, I've changed, and I've also changed my theo- my theological beliefs over time. But I still retain the basic uh, sort of heart and soul of evangelicalism, which is that the Bible is sola scriptura in terms of the Bible is the highest authority, and that as that highest authority, it's the it's got the final say in things. Now, however, there's also the caveat that I've, I've since learned and come to realize that 
what what Christians often, and including myself, I've I've failed in this way. What we what we mistakenly think is my interpretation of God's word is God's word. Now, none of us would say that. Oh no, it's just God's word. But the truth is, we cannot. In, we cannot yeah, read true. and understand God's word without interpreting it. And that's why we have denominations. And that's why we have, even within orthodoxy, there's plenty of disagreements, right? That's because we all have interpretations. And so we have to, the, the, I think one of the essential elements of my personal growth, uh, to know God better has been that humility, what I call the, uh, uh, hermeneutic of humility. What that means is, <laughs> It's a humility when approaching the text such that, cause I get this, I, I hear this a lot from Christians, you know, well, I just go with what the, what the plain text says. I just believe what the Bible is. I believe yeah. the Bible literally. You don't. All these sayings are coming from literally a misreading of the Bible because we don't understand that when we're reading the English text, it's been translated from original Greek and Hebrew and it's written originally to the ancient to an ancient people in an ancient culture and what it means to them in, in the plain text of Hebrew and Greek is not what it means to us. We have to realize that our cultural removal of thousands of years from this blinds us to understanding it. Therefore, we need the help of teachers. We yeah. need the help of study to, to, to understand it well. That doesn't mean you, of course, you can still read the Bible and f- come to know Jesus. But in terms of knowing him accurately, like right? Like remember when Priscilla and uh, Aquila, uh, you know, found Apollos and he was on the right track, but they, the Bible says they described to him the truth of God more accurately. Uh, so it's, it is possible as Christians, once you recognize that, man, I could be wrong, but that doesn't mean God's word is wrong. What it means is everything we believe is filtered through an interpretive grid. And we have to be honest yeah. enough to look at that grid and, and analyze it and question it as well. And this is all, I'm glad you brought this up because this is honestly, one of the most important issues that does need to be dealt with before you talk about theological things, because everybody has all these preconceived notions and they just react negatively. And I've done it myself in the past. I admit it, you know, like that's heresy or whatever, you know, when you hear something that's, you know, different or new or whatever. Um, and look, there is heresy, but, but, uh, the automatic reaction that often comes from our assumption that our theological interpretation is God's word. No, it's not. And so that that was what brought me to start to re-examine my own understandings of the Bible, such that uh, to seek to understand it in its original ancient context. And when I started doing that, was when a, a lot of a lot of these, a lot of what we've talked about was opened up to me because I started to discover that a lot of these strange things that we read in the Bible, and a lot of the symbols, not a lot, <laughs> all the symbols, they are rooted in cultural interpretation that is not always the same as us. And so um, Mm. as we seek to go back into the Bible and understand that, this is where the other, um, in a way, sola scriptura, meaning uh, the Bible is my ultimate authority. Um, I came from a background where that tended to create in my mindset, even though I didn't think of it this way, I started realizing it was this way. And that was only the Bible is true about God, or, you know, it's sort of like about the universe or whatever, right? And and so what that means is, is you hear, you know, anything from any other, you know, ancient second temple literature or anything outside the Bible written by Christians or, or whatever, it's either questionable or not true, right? And I have no problem acknowledging that if the Bible is the ultimate authority, I do not question it, but I do question my interpretation. I may be wrong, right? And then secondly, even though that's the case, and even though I do agree that other 
writings are not scripture, that doesn't mean you can't get truth from them. But right. here's the question about what truth, how do we understand that truth is consistent with the scripture? Well, obviously there's the comparison, but what happened was when I started facing some of these strange anomalies in scripture that are there, um, such as in the book of Jude, it, you know, it starts here, but it, it grows. The book of Jude quotes from a second temple Jewish um, ancient book called the book of Enoch. And Jude actually quotes from it. Not only does he quote from it, but he also, the, the whole letter draws various pieces and components from the book of Enoch, mm -hmm. such as the sin of the angels. That's, there's no, there's no description of the sin of the angels in, in, in the old Testament, but, but well, there is, but it's, it's subtle. It's not in there inherently it's Genesis six, right? But it doesn't say they sinned. Right. Um, but uh, there's a lot of ancient second temple literature that does point out that, that, that Genesis six is that sin of the angels, but Jude himself. It, so he's quoting from Enoch. He's drawing concepts and structure from the book of Enoch. And his is not the only book. Not only does his second Peter also, well, and he, uh, he you know, also does it. He does it in a way that with the with the assumption that you know what he's talking about. If like yeah. if I if I were to reference something like you know boy that's you know you know I don't know if I reference a sports team or reference a cultural yeah. reference I don't sure. need to explain the whole context because you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. We do it. Anything that becomes popular, we just sort of make our oh yeah you know yeah you're right. I can't think of an example, but but you know like <laughs> and yeah and like he, right now he does that. Like right now, you know, the, the, the movie Oppenheimer, I just saw the movie Oppenheimer is, you know, yeah. getting hot attention and stuff like that. And someone may, may just say, well, you know, that's like, that's pretty atomic, you know, just little, little references that, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what's going on. But here's the key. Here's the, my, my, I had always questioned, not only questioned, but I always just assumed, yeah, Book of Enoch, all that stuff, pseudepigrapha, apocrypha, it's all false and it's, it's evil because it's trying to say it's scripture, but it's not, you know, or it's trying to have the authority of scripture, let's put it that way, but it's not. And so therefore that makes it evil, not just wrong. But when I, when I said, okay, but if the Bible says something, then I trust it. And the Bible quotes from Enoch, what does that tell you? If you are consistent, you have to go, oh, I must respect the book of first Enoch because the Bible does. And of course, you know, in my, in my, uh, writings, I've discovered many places in, in the Bible that they refer to other literature and such. And sometimes they're just quoting it uh, to critique it. Sometimes they're quoting it favorably. And a lot of times we don't even have the ancient sources. You know, like there are books called the, the Book of the Kings of Israel, which is not First and Second Kings. It's a different book. The Book of Jasher. Like, right, they, even the Bible mm -hmm. refers to other books outside the Bible that they're getting their information from, right? Right. So the question then becomes, does that mean Book of Enoch is scripture? No, not necessarily. There are some people who do conclude that, but I don't. I still, I still am committed to no. Only the Bible is scripture, but that doesn't mean only the Bible is true. And if the Bible does draw from books like First of Enoch, then I, even though I don't believe Enoch is scripture, I still should uh, give it pro, uh, uh, an appropriate value of respect and trust beyond dismissing it, which is what most Christians do. Because the Christians who dismiss it, I would argue, are being unbiblical. They are denying what the Bible says. And so uh, that, was the, that was when I started to at least be able to read these other Second Temple literature sources. And I, that's where I sort of drew from a lot of them 
to fill in the fictional parts of my novel series, Chronicles mm-hmm. of the Nephilim and Chronicles of the Watchers. And I did that because I, I, you know, I know a lot of it's fictional and, and the, the, the point that they were doing is they were trying to, to, to sort of retell the Bible stories and, and make them relevant to their cu- culture and time in the second century. And that's what I'm doing with my novels. So in a way I thought, you know, I don't want to be original. I want to sort of draw from a tradition, draw from a, a legacy, you know? And so I drew a lot of the, the in-between parts that aren't in the Bible. I drew from books like the book of Enoch, right? And so that's kind of where uh, you can you can end up and in, in, in still have the Bible alone is God's word, but that doesn't mean you can't draw or at least discuss these other documents, which incidentally, the original ancient church did. If you read the church fathers yeah. and such, they, you know, and they had to decide which ones were scripture and weren't. And some people, you know, there was a lot of disagreement, but there were a lot of the church fathers actually did read this second temple literature and, you know, uh, the, the Apocrypha was, is still in Catholic Bibles, Eastern Orthodox Bibles, uh, because there is a strain and a tradition that at least accords those books respect. Now, I don't think they are, but I have to be humble and acknowledge, but there is a long history that shows that they might very well be. If Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Apocrypha, uh, I'm sorry, if they quoted from the Septuagint, mm-hmm. and the Septuagint had the books of Apocrypha in there, then I should at least record those, uh, re- regard them with some respect, right? Now, I'm, Jesus does not quote from the Apocrypha, and, and it's a debate, and it's not settled whether or not he's quoting from the Septuagint that had the Apocrypha because there was many different Greek translations. So that's, that's yeah. another debatable issue. But in general, look, if, if, there's, a, if there's a respect of this scripture, then I'm going to, I'm going to respect it too, and, and I'm going to draw from it while acknowledging that it's not scripture. Does that... Does that make sense? It it, it does. It does. I, I it's kind of a loaded question because I I knew where you were with this, but I, I just kind of want to answer that, just so that, you know, listeners that are coming to some of these ideas can kind of exhale and realize, like, I don't need to put up a wall to this guy. That you're coming to it with maybe the same humility that they would, and you would honor, uh, you know, God's word and hold it as the trump card. You know, you yeah. you play a and, and you play look, a jack or a queen. You know, the ace is going to trump it. No, the Bible is absolutely. is the highest. Absolutely. And, and the reason why I, I'm putting all this time and energy focusing on it, uh, you know, let's get to the ap- apocalypse, right? Um, is that uh, I, my books are selling really well. And whenever you post about these things, you get a lot of re- responses. And I'm noticing in some of my ads that I'm posting about the novel series, there's oh, a good section of Christians that do respond with this. This is heresy. This is not in the Bible. This is unbiblical. This is, you know, uh, this is demonic, right? And uh, the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha are Antichrist or whatever. And I get a lot of these reactions. And so I just want to be able to, I do respect where Christians are coming from that I disagree with when they are leery of it and they're thinking, well, that's not right. You're drawing, you're drawing from things other than the Bible. I understand where they're coming from because I've been there before. And so I just, this is my appeal to say, look, calm down. Yeah, yeah, I do believe it's scripture alone is the word of God, Bible. But um, yeah, maybe if you if you can at least uh, learn a little bit from our predecessors, who even though they weren't perfect, the Christian Church throughout history (laughs) has a lot of flaws, but they have a lot of wisdom too that I think we've we've lost. And don't be thrown off by the uh, pictures and graphics as well. You may be like, well, that doesn't look like the pictures in my Bible. That that guy's scary. Well, you know, 
there's probably some scary guys in the Bible that maybe might, you know, not characters that might not have looked exactly like you were picturing or, or thinking and a little more, you know, we've talked about some of these, you know, hybrids and giants and things we did in the last episode. There's no, there's no conclusions to come to other than startling and, and, and scary. And maybe even some of the stuff we're headed towards today as well. Yeah. And I also want to bring out this one point too, that, you know, I, 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 the books I write, they're imagination. And I push the envelope because it's fiction and it's supernatural fiction. We don't really know what the supernatural world looks like. We only get glimpses in the Bible, right? You know, we get glimpses of the seraphim and the cherubim, but it's wild, right? And I'm trying to write about these things. So naturally, I'm going to speculate. And naturally, you know, I push the envelope a little bit, you know, where because uh, it's fiction and, and I want it to be enjoyable, like a movie type of thing. And so, it, it you know, um, in other words, um, People need to understand that I'm not writing scripture. Um, I'm I'm right. telling fiction based on the Bible. To ha- what I'm writing are, are theological novels, right? So I may have Leviathan as actually Leviathan is probably the ultimate villain for my entire series because he represents symbolically the sea dragon of chaos. But of course, in this in the spiritual world that touches upon. The, our physical world. I have the the sea dragon with seven heads, just like the Bible talks about or refers to. And um, but I have it in my story as a monster, and the angels battle it on and off, you know, because he represents chaos, right? So there's a natural imaginative element component that I'm adding to. I'm pushing the envelope because I'm writing theology. In truth, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the spiritual realm of chaos about how God is a God of order and he creates his order out of chaos, right? And that's that's sort of the, the, the theology that's going on here. So, you know, the Bible says that there are giants. And I think we said this last time, um, you know, uh, Goliath was like nine, nine feet, right? Maybe only seven and a half feet, depending on the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. But nevertheless, say he's nine feet tall, right? You know, I, while I loved your commercial, and your commercial actually does the same thing I'm doing. We push the envelope. Giants yeah. are really cool. And modern day concept of giants are 20 feet footers and 30 footers. And, and we had like, a few no. versions of giants in there, you know? just Yeah, yeah. True, true enough. But what I'm saying is, is that um, the only, the largest giant in the Bible was nine feet foot. And then there's another one that's about, I think, seven and a half feet. So my point being that giants in the Bible are not 20 footers and 30 footers. They're just seven at most, nine feet tall. And that, and that's, but in my novel, I sometimes push the envelope. Like I'll have a 15 foot giant because he's like, because <laughs> it's po- technically possible, right? You know, but, but, but that's the highest I go because it's just, you know, beyond that is, it's kind of ludicrous, you know, but I, I just want people to understand that because they're theological novels, um, talking about scriptural truth. And that's why I push the envelope with imagination. So seed of the serpent versus the seed of Eve, that's kind of the, 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 the train tracks, you know, that, that we were on last time and the narrative sort of wraps around and continues. And so I guess kind of transition us to that. And then there's also yeah. a, well, we'll either put it below, we'll play it at the end, but the commercial, you got kind of a, a, a commercial for the, the, uh, the apocalypse. Series. Yeah. The, the Chronicles, Chronicles of, the of the Apocalypse. Yeah. So, so we have that I'll, as well. So you can kind of be, we're, we're moving into that space. Next. Sure. I'll cue you. I'll cue you when to play it. How's that? Okay, perfect. <laughs> so get ready there. Um, yeah. So, so actually my, my next series is Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And um, what it is, is it's the story, I call it the origin story of the book of Revelation. 
And what I mean by that is most of the, you know, most of the novels these days, there's a whole genre of end times novels about what they interpret the book of revelation as happening in our time, what it's going to look like. Right. Well, my series, you know, they, they follow in the left behind sort of narrative. They have different varieties of interpretations, but it's all basically similar to left behind. My series goes back and I tell the origin story of the book of revelation. In other words, in the first century around 65 AD, when Nero is persecuting the Christian church and John is writing the letter and he's in hiding because it's, it's subversive. And, um, and the story is, uh, well, <laughs> the story is that a, a Roman, uh, warrior is sent off to find out who's writing the subversive letter and track them down and burn the letters because, and kill the guy. Why? Why? Because the letter is subversive to the empire, right? And and it talks about the end of the world, and that of course is uh, not good for Nero's power and authority, right? So that's sort of the fictional premise of, of, of the journey. Starts out with cancel culture. You know? Yeah, 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 <laughs> definitely. But yeah, and it starts with the Great Fire of Rome. So I, it's very historical, and the 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 story is is four novels, and it it's all about the events that led up to and included the, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Roman armies. This is a historical event um, written about by Josephus, famous Jewish historian. What does this have to do with uh, <laughs> the war of the sea? Well, it, I'll, I'll get to that. It's the conclusion. So let me, let me pull back and say, so we talked about how, you know, in specifically, I think a good, a pretty good, you know, sort of, chapter to revisit is Psalm 82. You know, we talked about how that's, that sets up this and, and Deuteronomy 32, you know, Deuteronomy 32. In fact, I guess it's for the sake of, of this being a separate um, uh, discussion. Let me just briefly say that um, recap. So Deuteronomy 32, eight through, through nine says, when the most high, that's God, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion, Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So we did, we talked about how this is this description of at the Tower of Babel after mankind had also, you know, started over and yet still ended up becoming idolatrous of themselves and worshiping false gods. God says, okay, look, you know, if you're going to just keep worshiping these false gods, I'm going to give you over to them, right? Romans one, I'm going to give you over to these false gods that you're worshiping. And, uh, he gave, so that's where he gives the nations of peoples. The nations are defined as the 70 nations of, of, um, uh, Genesis 10, right? That's where they come from. Those, that's where they believe the Gentile nations came from those 70 nations that then spread out on the earth. Tower of Babel is when they spread out, right? Okay. So, the idea there was that this is when God is saying, I am, I am fixing these borders and meaning I am giving these sons of God, these rebellious, um, uh, uh, angelic beings, right? You're worshiping them. I'm going to place them in authority over you. And so the basic principle in the old Testament throughout the old, old Testament, as well as other ancient worlds, they believed that, uh, over every nation or you know, important authority on earth. There was a principality in heaven. So in Daniel 10, you know, we read about the prince of Persia, which scholars tell us these are spiritual princes, not earthly princes. This prince of Persia bows with the prince of Greece over 
the Prince of Israel, Michael. And what what is that referring to? Historically speaking, Persia took over power from um, Greece, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's reverse. Greece took over power after Persia. And so it's describing that when there's a war on earth, there's a war in heaven because there are principalities over these authorities and they are linked. That's the basic concept that Deuteronomy 32 is pointing to. And it's all connected to lands and territories, which is why God focuses on land for his people, Israel, um, and they are his allotted heritage. So allotment and inheritance has to do with land and authority on earth. So that's the sort of setup scenario. So when you get to Psalm 82 and we read God's has taken his place in the divine council, in other words, these divine beings around his throne in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. We talked about how these beings, divine beings are called gods and these they are, in some sense, they've been given authority over these nations to judge them and rule. But what does God say? You have judged unjustly. You know, you have shown partiality to the wicked. And we talked about how, how the, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. You, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High. There it is, sons of the Most High, sons of God. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. What does that mean? One day God will judge them and, uh, and, and he will judge these gods by destroying them, they'll die like men. Because why? Because supernatural beings don't die, right? Only men do. But these supernatural beings are going to be judged by dying like men. And in the last verse, we hmm. we talked about how arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Ah, oh, this is messianic. Who arises? The Greek word anastasia, anastasia is resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus, all over the Bible, it says that Jesus will be the one, the Messiah will inherit the nations. So this is a messianic verse, and, and he does it when he judges the earth, or the land in this case. The, the word earth actually is land, which doesn't mean the globe. It, it could just mean you know wherever he's specifically judging. So this judgment of these gods happens when Messiah raises, resurrects from the dead, and inherits the nations. Now, the last book in my series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, is called Jesus Triumphant. And this is an unusual Jesus novel. It's never been done before because I seek to try to describe what does that look like? We know that the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, which is the throne of kingship. Jesus was anointed as king, right? That's what the whole messianic the whole messianic promise was that Messiah would come and he would be king over all the earth. And God's throne is the king, kingship over all the earth. And that's when Jesus became king. That's the anointing. That's what anointing is. He was anointed as king. So this isn't a promise for the future. This actually occurred at the ascension. And the ascension was actually referred to in Daniel 7, you know, when uh, it says, one like a son of man will come up with the clouds uh, to the throne of God, and he will receive all the kingdoms, and the kingdoms of, of man will become his. He is the kingdom. He has the kingdom of God. The Danielic prophecies are talking about that arrival of Messiah, and he will bring kingship, and he will be king over all the earth. Now, there are a lot of Christians that believe, oh yeah, yeah, he did, but he, but it's, but it hasn't happened on earth or physically. It's only in heaven, and that's that will be something that you know we can debate about. But suffice it to say that. In the Bible, the heavenly rule of God is greater than earthly rule. So if, if Jesus is ruling from heaven, the throne of David is in heaven next to God as king, that there's anything 
on earth is less than that. So he's already king and he's crowned as king. Now, the question is, um, how, you know, what does this mean? What am I getting to? What I'm getting to is that it, the res- death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God, and it, uh, it inaugurated Jesus' kingship, mm-hmm. but there's something not quite in place yet. And what I mean by that is the temple of the old covenant is still standing. So Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, but the temple's still standing. And we even read like the apostles will go to the temple and offer sacrifices and stuff. What's, what, what's up with that? I thought in Paul himself wrote that, you know, sacrifices are, no, are of nothing now, now that Christ and Messiah has come. Well, here's, here's, here's where I'm going to get to with, with my next novel series, Chronicles Apocalypse. It's this, that yes, God, Jesus established his heavenly kingdom and the, the blood of the covenant was concluded, but God is not a God only of abstraction or philosophy and theology. He's a God of history, isn't he? So whatever he does, he does also in history. He interacts with history. And so until the incarnation of the old covenant, which is the temple, right. if that's still standing then there's a conflict of covenants, isn't there? The earthly incarnation of the old covenant is still standing while the new covenant is here. That's a, that's a, a messy principle, but the book of Hebrews talks all about this. It talks about how you know, the, the, you know, the, the, um, Jesus has gone into the heavenly temple, but the earthly temple is still standing. And until that's destroyed, the consummation of that kingdom is not full, or the, of that covenant is not full historically or publicly established even though it is truly spiritually it's not historically or publicly established and so this is this is now we're start starting to get to where jesus is um is is talking about something very important here he goes in in luke uh well let's let's say this no let's do this this is where we this is where we start to touch on the theology of of what's going on in the book of Revelation. But let me just introduce you by um, talking about um, Matthew 24. So Matthew 24, and we'll go, we'll go into this in detail. Hey, some Brian, can I ask you a question on sure. that real quick? Oh, so sure. at, is that, is that why there was such a, 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 a physical impact on the, the temple and the and the the veil and these things on Jesus's death because it was such a, a a spiritual battle in the heavens and earth kind of colliding is that why the the weather and everything there was so much around the crucifixion and his resurrection yeah. is, is that is that kind of like an like an echo of what was happening in the unseen absolutely absolutely um, a very good point in fact you know it's funny um, oh this is a good this is a good one Luke four so in Luke four. Jesus is there in the, in the, in, in the synagogue and he's reading and he, this is one where he gets out Isaiah and he reads it mm-hmm. and he pulls out the scroll in Luke four eighteen and he reads the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That's kingship to proclaim good news to the poor, claim liberty and to set the liberty. Those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the, um, the sabbatical year, right? And that's the ultimate, that's, I'm sorry, that's the Jubilee. That's the Jubilee of uh-huh. Jubilees. And when Messiah comes, he would bring the Jubilee of Jubilees, right? And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And then we go on after that. And so it's interesting that he quotes, but, but if you go back to the original verse that he was quoting from, there's more to that verse that's, it's, that has been left out. And it's important that we know this because he said, this has been fulfilled, right? So God has initiated spirit of the Lord, proclaiming liberty, you know, Messiah has come. But uh, let's see if I can call up that passage. It's not, oh, there it is. Oh, there we go. <laughs> He's quoting from Isaiah 61, one and on. And what Jesus, he stops before the last verse. And the last, uh, not the last verse, he stops before the next verse, which says this, right after he says, proclaim liberty, etc. Isaiah says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee of Jubilees, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, a lot of Christians read that and think, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the end time judgment or that's the, the last judgment. And that hasn't happened yet. Well, it hasn't happened yet when Jesus was saying it, but it's interesting because it will happen within 40 years. And let, let me show you what I mean. Remember this though. So he's, in other words, what he's saying here is when Messiah comes, he will bring both. This is what Isaiah is saying. When Messiah comes, he will bring both atonement and judgment. It's a two-pronged thing. Who's he judging? Who's he judging? We'll get to that. Ultimately, okay. I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be those who reject the Messiah and the old covenant because he's establishing the new covenant, right? But here it is, the day of vengeance of our God. So who is that against? Well, here's the thing. That day of judgment is what Jesus is talking about later on in Luke. He starts to talk about, in fact, I'll get there now. This is where Luke 21, he's describing what's going to be coming, the destruction of Jerusalem. When you see uh, Luke 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. Now, a lot of Christians think, oh yeah, this is in our future. But consider this. No, he's actually talking about what's going to happen soon within their lifetimes. And it in fact did happen. And we'll show you. But Jerusalem was surrounded by armies within 40 years, right? But here's what he says next. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. There it mm. is. There's the second part of Isaiah 61, the days of vengeance of the judgment on Jerusalem. Um, uh, for there will be great distress upon the land. People read it as earth, but it's actually land, land of Israel, and wrath against this people. So he's saying against the Jewish people, there's wrath because Jerusalem will be surrounded and destroyed and this people will be judged. Wrath of God against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, which did happen in AD 70. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's another theological thing. We'll get into that some other time. But, but the point is, is here's where Jesus is saying the second component of messianic prophecy is coming and it's going to happen within your lifetime. Now, uh, the days of vengeance, in other words, when Messiah comes, he will bring both atonement and judgment. This is not the last judgment. That's a different thing. That's a different concept. He's talking about the days of vengeance and the days of vengeance are going to be against Jerusalem and this people, God's wrath. Why? Because they rejected Messiah. All throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus tells these parables over and over again about the Jewish leaders and people who reject Messiah are going to be judged. 
So by the time we get to Matthew 23, we've heard these dozen parables, right? You know, the parables of the talents and the parables of, of the vineyard, right? The vineyard mm -hmm. is like Israel and the Israelites kill God and his prophets and then ultimately kill his son. And what do you think the, uh, the Lord of the vineyard is going to do? He will come back and destroy those those vine growers, right? And that's Israel. Those, uh, that's the, um, the, um, whatever the historical Israel of that time that was rejecting Messiah will be judged. So he's already said this multiple times in, in parables, but then by the time he gets to uh, Matthew 23, we hear all these woes against the Pharisees and hypocrites. Why? Because they're rejecting Messiah. So this is the dominant theme that is going on. And so, um, we get to Matthew 23, and he says, 31, Jesus says, witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. Why? Because they're going to kill Messiah. They're the sons of those. Fill up the measure of your fathers. That term, fill, filling up the measure, is used of uh, in the ancient um, Hebrew Bible against the Amorites. The Amorites' iniquity was filled up until what? Till God came and killed them all in the land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. So this is a massive judgment when he says, measure up your sins, that he's talking to the Jews of that time and the leaders who represent the people. So it's, it's the whole nation he's talking to again. Why over and over again, because you will reject Messiah, you serpents, you brood of vipers, right? You're going to be sentenced to Gehenna. Therefore, I send you prophets, men, wise men, scribes, and you kill them. And, and then he says on you, this, he's talking to these people on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the land. So he's, he's basically saying, you've got this long history of, of Jews <laughs> killing their own prophets, but you're going to be the worst. All that blood will be on your head. Why? Because they're killing the prophet of prophets, Jesus, the Messiah, right? So it makes perfect sense, this judgment that he's, he's pronouncing upon them from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And then listen to this. He says, truly I say to you, verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And he's talking to them, you guys, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations in, in uh, end times people about this generation, and they all basically try to get around the fact that he's talking to the people he's talking to. No, it's the generation will see the signs in the future. No, it's this race. Or, none of them work because whenever he says this generation in the, in the New Testament, and specifically in Matthew, over and over and over again, he's talking about this wicked generation that rejects Messiah. Um, this, this generation in front of him. Exactly. In other words, um, th these people who rejected him will be judged. Luke 17, 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign Jonah has been given to it. And truly, I say to you, the queen of the South will rise up in judgment um, with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because someone greater than Solomon is here, because you rejected Messiah. Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at Jonah. <laughs> but behold, someone the greater is Jonah. His, it's on and on and on. He's saying, because you're rejecting Messiah, you will, this generation who rejects Messiah will be judged. So contextually, Whenever he refers to this generation, he's always talking about the generation he's talking to, not a future one. So what I'm getting at is th why this is so crucial and important is because uh, it is a hermeneutic, a hermeneutic that Jesus himself is telling us. And he says, uh, all these things, what, what things? 
Well, we're going to read those, all those things in Matthew 24. But he's telling us right off the bat, all these things are going to come upon this generation. So whatever, however you interpret Matthew 24, put aside your own biases and your own assumptions. Whatever you, you believe, you have to interpret it as occurring to that generation. You can't interpret it according to a future generation because you're defying Jesus's own hermeneutic. And what's interesting was after Jesus gives all these judgments, and we'll go through them, he says the same thing at the very end of his sermon in Matthew 25. No, I'm sorry. Um, in Matthew 24, verse 34, he says it again. He says, all these things, judgment, heaven and earth and all this stuff. And he goes, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he's got bookends telling you all these things I'm talking about are going to happen within this generation. You won't even, most of you won't, not most of you, but this generation won't die away. Well, what's a generation, right? It's about 40 years. Now, you know, there's a lot of end times, you know, Christians who try, you know, they see that th this doesn't fit their scenario. So they try to reinterpret it and mm -hmm. they've scour the Bible to find examples. Oh, some samples say men live to be 80 and, and, and some verses say 120 years of the life of a man. But <clears throat> that's not the definition of generation. Generation is, you know, when you have children and such and, and the Bible itself defines it as within that 40 year period, yeah. because that phrase, this generation, why, G why does Jesus keep using it so much? Think about it. It's a reflection of as the Bible always reflects, New Testament always reflects Old Testament concepts. It's that's part of to me. That's the beauty of the the, the Word of God. How it's all reiterated. What was the generation? Well, I've already given it away. <laughs> who were the people <laughs> called who rejected the Promised Land because of the giants and would not go in? What happened to them? Jesus, uh, Yahweh said, "Behold, this generation." will die, will not enter the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb will. Yep. So there's this concept is- and They just kind of wandered and, around until those it? guys died off, until exactly. that generation was gone. Exactly. And that was 40 years. Yeah. So when the phrase, this generation is very deeply linked to 40. It doesn't have to be exactly, although it's interesting. What I'm about to show you is it, it, was, very, it was almost exactly. So, but I don't think it has to be. I just think it has to be around 40 years because that's, you know, uh, whatever. Um, History doesn't have to be perfect. So Brian, as you're going through this, Luke 21 and Matthew 24 are kind of two, two different people kind of describing the same scenario where they, you know, what, what they were hearing Jesus say at the moment, the, 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 those two chapters kind of the same. Yes. Uh, and and I'll, I'll explain that as we, more so you, as we, as you we kind of bounced on. in and out of both of those Luke 21 yes. and Matthew 24. So because the same thing he's saying in Luke 21, the same phrases, right? Uh, desolation, flee to Judea, in the city depart. All these things are reiterated as well in Matthew 24, which shows that it's the same concept, you know. And then Jesus says in, in Luke 21, the signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and great distress. So yeah, he's giving the same sermon to different people, saying the same thing, but he's using slightly different words which clarify what he means. But sticking with Matthew, where it's so very clear. Um, so what I'm saying is, right off the bat, this is where I this is where I say if you believe the Bible over your own preconceived notions you have to you have to say well if Jesus says <laughs> that all these things I'm going to tell you has to happen before this generation dies out then I have to interpret all of it as occurring within about 40 years. 
Mm-hmm. Now, as a matter of fact, Jesus was saying this around what, 30, 33? 40 years later, roughly, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed and these things did come upon them. Now, here's where the second step in, in Matthew 24 links that, what I, what I just said. I just told you the basic hermeneutical principle from Turpin's passage. It can't be understood as any way other than within that generation, those people who, who reject the Messiah, that first, first century. Then the second thing he says, after all these things will come upon this generation, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent it, sent to it as well as Messiah. How long I've gathered, wanted to gather you as children, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? Your house, the house of God was the temple. So that phrase, your house, was a reference to the, uh, the temple of God. Because right next to it, right after that, Matthew 24, verse 1, there are no chapter distinctions in the original Bible. <laughs> right. Jesus left the temple and his disciples said, uh, pointed out the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, you see all these, build these buildings of the temple? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the judgment he's talking about here in Matthew 23 and 24 and 25, or at least 23 and 24, is um, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Why? Because it was the incarnation of the old covenant, and those people who were of that old covenant, uh, who, who still retained that temple in their worship and in their religion, rejected Messiah, and they were going to be judged. So it, what I'm referring to is, it's a twofold thing. It's, the, it's destroying the earthly elements of the old covenant because the old covenant is no more only the new covenant right but that destruction also embodies judgment on that people and jesus is the one who's saying it a lot of times people will say oh that sounds anti-semitic or whatever no it's not jesus is saying it you know like (laughs) you know like look at all the prophets isaiah ezekiel all of them said you know israel you are you are like an adulterous whore you're in a you're a prostitute god's gonna judge you so does that make all the prophets and jesus anti-semitic no of course not he's just simply describing a a judgment, a historical judgment upon specific people who specifically judged or uh, rejected Messiah. And so that's the context of Matthew 24. This judgment is this for rejecting Messiah, and it's going to include that destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And that's why, um, and that's a hard thing for people to accept because most or many Christians, just their view of the last days is they think Matthew 24 is, is yet to happen in our future. And they go through great, great, um, I, 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 look, I did it myself, but you have to go through great mental gymnastics to twist the plain meaning, <laughs> plain meaning in the ancient world of what these things meant. Uh, it's just so clear to me there. Um, and, and, and the reason why is because we have these preconceived notions. So we say, well, okay, I can see Jesus saying that, but then how could this have happened? How could this have happened? Right? Um, well, Matthew, tw- we- Matthew 24 is pretty consistently what's referenced when people are trying to interpret what's going on in our world right now. Exactly. And what I'm, what I'm explaining is, no, this is all about the first century. And why is it relevant? And we jump back to Luke 21, which is, again, uh, actually, as well as, um, you know, Luke 21. 21 and 24, I think, um, also he, he talks about that. But yeah, Luke 21, um, 
so so what I'm getting at is this this is why so this destruction of the temple and and Jerusalem is a destruction of the earthly incarnation of the old covenant to be replaced by the new covenant and it's a judgment upon the old covenant people who rejected Messiah um of that first generation so that destruction marks the final earthly public historical consummation of the new covenant that God had established, right? So um, that means there's a 40-year period, which is kind of messy. And I want to jump, this isn't something that like, wait a minute, is that something you're making up? Like there's a, there's a time delay or something like that? Well, actually, it's very much in the scripture. I'll just I'll just jump to one other case. He, the book of Hebrews is really where a lot of this um, a lot of this comes out. But um, so you're reading about the 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 temple and how Jesus is the true high priest of the true temple in heaven, right? And in Hebrews eight, he's talking about the new covenant. Everything we've been saying, the new covenant is coming and it will abolish the old covenant. And in uh, Hebrews 8.13, he says this in this comparison of the old and new covenant. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So there's a sense in which he says, well, the new covenant already makes the old covenant obsolete. But then he says, but it's becoming obsolete. And it's growing old and it's ready to vanish away, which means it hasn't. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, that's what I've been saying all along is, yes, the new covenant has come in and established heavenly, but there's an earthly uh, um, finalization that's going to happen. And that's the destruction of the temple, which has not happened yet. The book of Hebrews was written before AD 70, before the temple was destroyed. And he's promising that which is already becoming obsolete, it's growing old, ready to vanish away. It's coming. The destruction's coming. And then further on down in, in Hebrews 9, 8, he's again talking about Jesus in the heavenly temple versus the earthly temple. And he says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the heavenly, true holy places, the holy place being the temple, right? The holy place is, is a term that refers to the, the temple. There's two sections, the, the holy place and the most holy place, right? And, and only the high priest and day of atonement could enter in the most holy place, right? And that's what he said Jesus did in the heavens. But then now he's talking about the Holy Spirit indicates the way into that heavenly temple is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. What does that mean? But then he says in parenthesis, which is symbolic for the present age. What does that mean? Well, what he's saying is the he's comparing the earthly temple as the first section of the, of the, the I'm sorry, the earthly temple is like the first section of, of the heavenly temple, um, and that's still standing, but that is symbolic of the present age. So what he's saying is the earthly temple is symbolic of the present age, and that has yet to be destroyed. And why? Because that's the whole point. The consummation of the kingdom of God will then be finalized, right? And so that's, that's sort of the, let's put it this way. If that's true, uh, that's the thing that inspired me to write Chronicles of the Apocalypse, because I tell the story of the Christian church being persecuted and the Christians being martyred like Paul and, and Peter. I tell all that stuff in the first century that I tell the story of the consummation of that generation. 
So the story begins around AD 64 when Nero starts the great fire of Rome, and he ends up blaming that on the Christians, which, which justifies persecuting the Christians and the Jews who rejected the Christians help him to do that. So I tell the story from AD 63 until AD 70. So that's about seven years. Um, uh, or I'm sorry, AD 64 until 70. So that's about uh, six years or so. I tell that story and I bring out um, how I think the book of Revelation may have been understood in that first century while those Christians were experiencing that. And we'll, we'll get into more details, but I think this might be, uh, would this be a good place to play the Chronicles of the Apocalypse commercial? I think let's do it. That's a good transition set up where we're headed. In ancient Rome, Emperor Nero hunts Christians. In prison, the Apostle John sees the apocalypse. In Jerusalem, Jews revolt in all-out war. For them, it's the end of the world. One Christian woman holds the key to a war of angels and demons that will change the future forever. Chronicles of the Apocalypse is a series of biblical novels by best-selling author Brian Kadawa, telling the story of the Book of Revelation in the first century. Four supernatural novels. Read them all, from Tyrant, Rise of the Beast, to Judgment, Wrath of the Lamb. Available in ebook, paperbook, and audiobook at Amazon.com. That's Chronicles of the Apocalypse by Brian Gadawa at Amazon.com. That's great. You know, oh, that's we don't, cool. I like we, that. <laughs> we don't typically have a lot of, of New Testament narratives, you know, storylines. It's kind of looked at as like lots of individual Bible studies. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, hey, at church, we did a Sunday school class on the book of Hebrews. Hey, we studied, you know, Romans. You know, we have these things. Um, there, there's a couple. Is it maybe, I don't remember. I, my daughter, my wife, and I've, I've, I've read them. It was like uh, maybe Francine Rivers or somebody like that, you know, had some uh, call the lion or something. I don't remember what they were. There's real yeah, hot yeah. for a while. You Wind know, and the lion or something. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I, I probably should read it. I don't know. But uh, that, that kind of gets it into a, a, a story. You know, we have a lot of, of storylines in the Old Testament, and then there's like, you know, the the life of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of versions of it going back to Jesus and Nazareth and all this stuff, but there, there's not a whole lot that that really unpacks what life looked like and that connects all these people that seem to just sort of be just random characters that sort of wrote a Bible study. Yeah. And, the, and then because yeah. of our life, they're sort of looked at as Bible studies, not yeah, yeah. people people that were all interwoven with each other and, and knew one another and were doing things together and, and, and like, like you're putting together. David, uh, great point. You know, you've got some really good points. Maybe you should talk. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I'm going to grab the, grab the microphone again, but no, yeah, that great point. In fact, as a matter of fact, I agree with you. Uh, this is something NT Wright has really been helpful. I, for my, in my life, in, 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 in reading the Bible, rereading the Bible afresh, too often Christians will read the Bible as if it was a book given to us of timeless truths, you know, like the book of Proverbs or something like right. that. You know, we read it as they're, as if they're timeless truths and they're all about our future or whatever, but it's like, no, they were the entire, there's good scholarship that argues the entire new Testament was written before the destruction of, of the temple before AD 70. And as you said, a lot of the expectations, when you go through and you read a lot of, of the letters, you'll see references to this coming judgment and wrath, which most Christians assume, oh, that's 
that's in our future or that's the last judgment. And they, they don't realize, no, the context was they were all waiting for this destruction to come and it did come. Uh, but a lot and, and, and a lot of the letters were encouraging those Christians on what to do and, and, and how to, how to handle it because of it was going to be a conflagration that would be huge. And sure enough, it was. And so, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, so, so, so here I am saying this thing, it should be shocking to a lot of Christians because most people, you know, have a left behind sort of understanding and, oh, yeah. and, and I get that. So uh, just, just know this as I, as I go deeper into this. Um, what I just told you is a historical fact anyway, you know, the temple destroyed mm -hmm. and this whole period of, from, you know, death and resurrection of Christ until the temple destruction is a time period that's amazingly spiritually and theologically interesting. And yet most Christians for, for most of my Christian life never told me about it. So for the historical purpose alone, <laughs> I would argue my, my series novel Chronicles of the Apocalypse tell that historical side of things, what's going on. There's a book written by uh, Josephus called Wars of the Jews. Now, Josephus was a uh, famous Pharisee who was a Hellenist. He was on, the, or actually was on the side of Rome, um, but he didn't start out that way. He started out in this war of the Jews that started in AD 67 or so and went to AD 70. The Jews rose up against Rome and they, they tried to, to, they, yeah, there it is. They tried to fight Rome. Now Josephus was a part of it, but then he kind of, he got captured and he ended up trying, helping the Romans by trying to appeal to the Jews. He didn't become a, he was considered a traitor by some, but he did not consider himself a traitor because he felt God was judging the Jews because they weren't obedient to him. Now he was not a Christian, so he, he didn't say that, but he did believe that that um, the Jews should have submitted to Rome and given up because Rome would have treated them well, but because they didn't, they got slaughtered. So it turns out Josephus ends up becoming a patron, or Rome becomes his patron or whatever, and he becomes a historian that writes the only fully documented source of those events in that time period mm -hmm. that my story takes place. So I draw from the history of Josephus, and I'm telling you, it's amazing when you read Josephus, you see a lot of language, symbolic or not, ex, you know, extreme descriptions of the destruction. You know, the, the whole Sea of Galilee was turned to blood. That actually are very similar, similar to the sim, symbolism that you read about in Revelation. Um, but the point is, is that even if you if you're going on, oh, wait a minute, Brian, this sounds really weird. Um, I trust, I assure you <laughs> that you will you will be fascinated by the historical time period that most Christians don't know anything about. And yet mm -hmm. it is very crucial, but here's the other side of the story. As we talked about before, uh, what about these watchers? How, how do they come into play? Well, remember how I said Psalm 82 claims that when Messiah resurrects and when I think theologically, when there's a reference to resurrection, it's, Theologically, it's a complex of events. What I mean by that is it's resurrection, or I'm sorry, it's death, resurrection, and ascension, which is the fullness of the messianic, you know, arrival and kingship. And so just because it refers to the resurrection doesn't mean it's only the resurrection. You know, you find this all over the New Testament, right? He's not going to say every time death, resurrection, and ascension, death, right? You know, just the resurrection. Um, and the reason why I say that is because Psalm 82, when it says, you know, arise, O oh God, this is a resurrection and, and judge people and you will inherit the nations. Um, 
some people believe that that inheritance of nations is in the future. But here's the thing. We've already established that uh, God has said that the nations are under <clears throat> the authority of these other fallen sons of God. They are blind and in darkness, aren't they? You, you know, you see that in the whole Old Testament. Sure, there's an occasional person or maybe even a city like Nineveh repents, but that's about it. Like people just remained in darkness, you know? And so why? Because they were all under bondage to these principalities and powers. Mm. That's what Paul refers to in the New Testament. He's not just, he's not just using terms about demons. He's saying the principalities and powers are these ruling authorities in heaven, in the heavenly realms. They see Messiah is coming and his kingship is going to be established and they're getting desperate, right? And so what I'm, what I'm getting to is uh, the, the establishment of the kingdom of God has to be biblically, it has to be the disinheritance of the nations of all these watchers. We, we talked about last time how okay. the term watchers was used in Daniel, and it's also in the book of Enoch, and it refers to these guardian principalities. And But here's the thing. It has to be. Why? Because what does the Bible promise over and over again in the Old Testament? When Messiah comes, he will not only unite the, the, the uh, uh, Israel and Judah, yeah, Israel and Judah, but he will bring in the ingathering of the Gentiles. <laughs> What's the gospel? That's the gospel, Acts 2, right? It's like... It's, it's like, this is here. Messiah has come. If, if all the Gentiles have faith, they can come into the kingdom of God. And who are the Gentiles? From all the nations who are under the bondage of these other gods. Okay. Well, if think about it. If you have powers and principalities who are authorities over nations, what happens when Messiah is enthroned and, and takes the authority over all the earth? Well, they're no longer authorities, are they? They're disinherited. He disinherits when Christ ascends to the throne in first century, he disinherits those watchers. That's what enables the people of every tribe and every tongue and nation to come into the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. That's literally the gospel. So if you say that these, so what I'm saying is it's the first century where these, these uh, when the old covenant was fully and finally dis destroyed uh, on the earth, that was the final consummation of the, disinheritance of the watchers and their judgment and, and that's so the regional that's regional being regional powers powers yeah. which place and so what's their effect is that now They're, they have no effect be, 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 now well, okay that? and i'm saying i'm saying i don't want to jump important. ahead of you but i'm like wow this is this is where a lot of christians today who do believe in in the you know watchers over the nations they do believe they're still around now and they believe that you know yeah well we're supposed to fight them and stuff like that but what i'm saying is if there are authorities other than Jesus over na nations, Jesus is not Messiah. By definition, Messiah is king over all nations, right? And the point is, is if there was authority still over those nations, the Gentiles would not, would not be able okay. to, 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 to remember what Isaiah says, you know, they'll flow into the mountain of God. They would not be able to do so because they would be in bondage, but they're not in bondage anymore to those, those beings. That's why Every, people from every tribe, and that's why the gospel of the new covenant has gone over all the earth and people from every tribe and nation. See what I'm saying is like the glory of the gospel is precisely that the nations are no longer under the, the authority or powers um, of, of the watchers. That was finally and fully um, consummated by AD 70 with that destruction of the old covenant incarnation.
Okay. Um, so that's, and, and that's going to be controversial for people who still, well, you know, and I, I get it. You know, sometimes you look at the world, it sure looks like, uh, you know, Islam is un, under demonic powers and stuff. You know, there may be, there still may be demonic spirit beings going around. But what I'm talking about theologically is there are, there cannot be spiritual authorities and powers over nations because if there were, Jesus was not, would not be Messiah because the Bible says he is enthroned as king, which means there are no other authorities. He is the, he is the sole authority over all the earth. Um, now, uh, I don't know where we want to, we want to take this further, but I, I can, okay. So, so people are thinking, you know, well, that still sounds, you know, from what I've studied, you know, um, that just does not sound right at all. Well, let's, let me, let me walk through some of these things of Matthew 24. I think it's a Matthew 24. We, you know, um, Maybe eventually we'll, we'll, if people want, we could do a whole thing on Revelation, but that would take a, a lot more time. But Matthew 24 is a little bit more, uh, it's a good introduction to what I'm saying and, and to the whole storyline of Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Because as you were saying, I think people could read my Chronicles of the Apocalypse and get the full theology about how all this is all connected. And it's not like a boring systematic thing, you know, like some people just, I understand prophecy, studying prophecy can get very, very confusing and it still confuses me. So it, it, it Are these can be narrated? difficult. Do you have the, the audio version of these as well? I do have the audio book wow. as well. So if you like audio book, definitely get it. Because you could, you could be a, uh, a voiceover person if that's all you did. That could be your thing. Yeah. I, I love doing them, but, um, but, but what I'm saying is if, if you're finding it hard to even to follow what I'm saying, if you just read the story, it'll it'll incarnate it in a way that will make sense. I think it really does make sense to me that way. You know, this by the way, this is why I think Left Behind was so popular. <laughs> um, not because it's true, but because uh, in fact it's very false. Um, and it wasn't even great storytelling, in my opinion, from my perspective. But it was good enough that it embodied a complete system of eschatology that a lot of Christians don't want to study. But in the body of a story that is exciting with thrilling sure. and they're on the run and people trying to kill them, I, I, I get it. I love that stuff too. I think that it was a great uh, storytelling embodiment of a theology that helped people see and see things that way. And that's why it was so influential, right? Um, so yeah, so check that out. But let, let, me, let me walk through some of Matthew 24 to sort of lay the groundwork for this understanding. I, I think we couldn't have a more relevant topic in in this moment because there's not a, almost a day that goes by, certainly not a week goes by that I don't hear Matthew 24 reference to a news cycle. Yeah. I mean, almost daily. I mean, definitely weekly for sure. Matthew 24 Agreed. and the current news cycle. Agreed. Agreed. And I would argue that Matthew 24 is actually an encapsulation, a short summary of Revelation. Some people will point this out as well. Uh, if you think about it, the Gospel of John does not ha is the only one that doesn't have the Olivet Discourse in it. All the other three do. And I think that's because he left the Book of Revelation to be his Olivet Discourse. Uh, okay. But nevertheless, so they are connected. But let's start, you know, you, you got to start somewhere. And I think Matthew 24 is really good. And if we jump back just to 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 remind ourselves that, whoa, you know, Matthew 23 was talking all about 
the you know actually Matthew twenty one through twenty three was the parables and you know oh my gosh you know let's you know gosh let's go back um, and now John the apostle was the youngest of all of them is that right I don't know or he younger. ended up being the the one who he ended up being the last one who lived in the fastest he, didn't, he was not martyred he was not martyred. And so in uh, the author of Revelation, so when you talk about a generation and being around, it, it does, you know, it, it kind of lends that. So he's here hearing this and then the writer, you know, of Revelation. So a part yeah. of both of those with probably the, I, I always assumed he was the youngest, but I don't know why I knew that or thought that. I just, yeah. maybe something you know. hear. I, I don't I never had like his baseball card or anything like that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of always thought he was. Well, so... Uh, getting into Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants, right? You know, a lot of times Christians read these parables and they assume it's about the second coming. It's like, no, it's not about the second coming, actually. It's about the first century. You read about the parable of the tenants, and again, they were rejecting Messiah. And he says, you know, the vine growers, right? And 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 he says, um, the tenants saw the sun and they said, let's kill the heir. You know, who's that? That's Jesus. That's the first right. century. And then he says, well, then he took them and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then he says, when therefore Jesus is saying, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. And then Jesus says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So he's saying, you, this generation that's rejecting Messiah, King of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a new people. The people, the body, the church, the body of Christ, right? Which includes both Jew and Gentile believers, right? So, um, so there's that. And then right after that, the parable of the wedding feast, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jesus telling the parable of the kingdom of heaven, king gives a wedding feast, right? And he goes out and he tells all the people and they reject him. And then he, uh, he sends his servants and they reject and they kill their servants, he says, but they paid no attention, went off. And he goes, while the rest, verse six, while the rest seized his serpent, servants, these are the people, his servants went out to tell about the kingdom and the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. That's the king, uh, Christians. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So <laughs> what happened? Jerusalem was burnt. So Jesus is saying, look, you're going to reject me. You're like, I'm giving, my, my Christians are telling you about the wedding feast of the kingdom of God and you're, you're killing them. So the king's going to come and destroy your city and kill you. It's on and on. It's a, it, this isn't, that's not about the second coming. This is about the first century. So by the time we get to 30, 23, now he's talked, focusing on the Pharisees. And we already talked about that. Well, all the woes, Pharisee woes, but, and it was all about, you're rejecting Messiah. So you're going to get all this upon you. And what, what will it be? It will be the destruction of Jerusalem and his temple. Now, now, now we go on uh, in verse three of Matthew 24. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus said, let no one lead you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and famines and earthquakes. And these are all the beginning of birth pains, you know. But they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away, and many false prophets. And But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
Now, this this is a passage again that people automatically assume it's in the future, but it's like if it if it, it wouldn't make sense, it just wouldn't make sense because number one, he's already just said he's already said the judgment that's coming is is upon Jerusalem and the temple. So so again, that's the context. Remember, the first principle was everything that I'm going to tell you about happens to this generation, so you have to interpret it as happening then, or you're not being true to Jesus's words. That's my argument. Mm. Now, um, this is. This is relatively easy, you know. Uh, many coming say, "I'm the Christ." You know, this has happened through all history. In fact, I, it's really funny. Like one of the one of the simpler things of this prophecy that is that is kind of interesting is um, you know, wars and rumors of wars. You know, another one is famines and earthquakes. Well, like this stuff has happened throughout all of history. You know, and and people say, "Yeah, but we have a, we have an in- increase in earthquakes now." So that's it. It's like, well, no, actually. If you if you look closely into the data, there is not an increase in earthquakes. There's an increase in our technology and sensitivity to be able to record them, and we record them all around the world. But there's not an increase of earthquakes at all. But not only that, the text doesn't say increase. It just says there will be various famines and earthquakes. So, you know, but wars and rumors yeah. of wars, like all through history, that's been the case. So, in a way, if you believe that this is for our future. That is a nonsense verse that that is is irrelevant because there's always wars and rumors of war, so it doesn't make sense. Nation rising it, against nation, right? But it does make sense in the first century, and here's why: because by the time Rome had controlled the the whole the inhabited world, they they even used the phrase "oikumene," to, uh, which meant like the world or the the earth. Um, that was a reference of the Roman Empire. They believed the Roman Empire was the world, right? So they would say that kind of a phrase, right? But there was in the first century, by the time of the first century, they had what was called Pax Romana. That meant the peace of Rome, which meant Rome had conquered everybody. And basically there was peace. There was like, there was basic peace because they were all conquered by Rome and they were all in submission to Rome. And so by the time of this first century though, in the days of, of Nero and such, there were um, battles and wars and stuff started to, to arise during his time period. But my point is, is they had this notion of Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome, which was the peace of the world. So for a prophecy to say, oh, there's wars and rumors of wars coming, that makes sense in the first century. It doesn't make sense any time after that. Um, but there's a lot more to it too, you know. There, there, oh boy, we, there's so much to go into, and so people have to forgive me that I can't address every little thing. You might be thinking, yeah, but what about this? What about that? But I gotta, I've gotta sort of hit hit the highlights, <laughs> or we'll be here for five, six hours, which would be fine with me, but maybe it wouldn't because of my throat. But uh, <laughs> but let's move back up here. So uh, a couple of phrases that are really common and popular. The end of the age. When will these things be? That you're coming, right? Well, that's obviously the second coming, and then the end of the age. Well, that obviously hasn't happened yet. You know, these are the things I hear people say all the time. Whenever you hear someone say, "Think about this," whenever someone says, "Well, that obviously hasn't happened yet," know right away you're listening to a person who is unaware of their own assumptions. (laughs) They are unaware that they are assuming their own beliefs, Mm. because, like I told you. Jesus said it was going to happen within that generation. So if you think it hasn't happened yet, you don't know what he means by that phrase. But nevertheless, um, uh, the end of the age. Well, that sounds like, wow, doesn't that sound like that hasn't happened? And that's the end of history, you know, when Jesus comes back and all this stuff. Well, here's the problem. 
The phrase and the concept, the end of the age, or there's a plurality, end of the ages. There were, there were several different um, sort of concepts in the Jewish community, but one of them was that there are two ages, right? Um, and that is the present age and the age to come. And the age to come was when Messiah comes, he will establish his kingdom, and that will be the Messianic age. So they basically had two ages. There were also some some different literature that would argue multiple ages, meaning, you know, maybe the, you know, whatever, the, the age of Adam and, and, and then sort of the age of the Mosaic Covenant or something. So there, sometimes the phrase ages is plural, but all of them believe that the end of that was the final age, which was the Messianic age. And so that's what they were expecting. Now, people nowadays, modern times, assume, well, that means the Messianic age is when Jesus is ruling on the earth in our future. No, 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 no. Read it in context, what they meant back then. So, for instance, um, in, uh, let's see, um, the end of the age. Um, got so many passages, I have to choose which ones to really talk about, you know. Um, let me just I, I say this. so many notes. My only complaint with you is I take so many notes. And I go back and review these things later. You, you, uh, you create a lot of homework, which is kind of a okay. thing. Good point to, for me to say, to say that, you know, if, if you don't, if you, if you don't want to read the fictional, uh, description of this in Chronicles of the Apocalypse, I do have a book that des- describes a lot of what I'm explaining and gives it a good basic introduction to this understanding. And that is called end times Bible prophecy. It's not what they told you. And there I give a good, it's, it's not a big book, it's so, but it introduces a lot of the basic concepts that, that I'll be talking about. We got that on the but, screen here. If you're watching it, uh, producer Colton's got it up on the screen now, but we will cool. uh, have links to these things down below. So whether you're listening on to the show notes, if you're on Apple, Spotify, any of those places, you're on Rumble, BitChute, anywhere, we'll have those links down below everywhere. And all, all, my, all my books are exclusively at Amazon in every format. So, um, so here's the key. Is that the end of, does the end of the age mean, uh, the end of history? No. Think of it this way. The, it's the end of the old test, old covenant age, because as I, as I already said, they believe there's two ages, the age and the, this age and the age to come. So we've already mentioned one is, um, Hebrews nine that says, you know, the Holy spirit indicates the way into the holy places. And the first section represents this present age. First Corinthians two talks about the um, rulers of this age, rulers of this age. Um, Jesus in Matthew 12 says, whoever speaks a word against the son of man be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So there's this concept of this age and the age to come. So what is this age to come? Uh, that's what I'm going to, to, to argue that the, so the word for age is in Greek is aeon. All right. Okay. It's not the end of history. Aeon is a, a time period. It could be a long time period or short time period, but it's the end of a period. And I'm trying to find the, so here's multiple ages. Um, okay. So here's now where kind of they talk about multiple ages. Um, Romans 16, 25. Now to him was able to strengthen you, uh, preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Um, 
We impart First uh, Corinthians two seven. We impart a secret hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So there's sometimes there's a multiple ages and sometimes there's a two ages, but in both cases, Messiah messianic age is the final age. So it doesn't matter which way you're looking at it. Uh, I'm trying to get to um, yeah. Okay, Matthew. Okay. So, um, so the end of the age, think of it as the end of the old covenant age, not the age, end of history. And the old covenant age is embodied in that temple. And that's why that's relevant. This also touches upon the last days. People say, well, it's the last days, you know, the last, is it the last days? And there are other passages that talk about last days. Is it the last days of earth? Is it the last days of history? No, it's the last days of the old covenant. Okay. See, remember, this is the context of the New Testament is the, the, the old covenant is, is dying out and Jesus, Messiah, brings the new covenant. So it's the end of all those old ways and the new ways are coming with Christ and with Messiah. And as a matter of fact, you know, for those who think, no, the last days are in our future. Actually, it clearly says in the Bible that the last days were the first century. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago. God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, in these last days, they have spoken to us by his son. So the coming of Jesus is in the last days. Um, let's see. Uh, Galatian, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, that's not last days, but the point is the fullness of time. Is that mm -hmm. the, the fullness of time? Is that the end of history? No, no. The fullness of everything's about M Messiah coming. So all the phrases and terminology is about when Messiah comes. But here's, here's something very interesting. Peter, in his, in his Acts 2 sermon, Acts 2, 16, he's quoting Joel. And, you know, we know this is another passage that many people think, well, that clearly hasn't happened yet. But what, what is happening next to, they start speaking in tongues and they have dreams and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and Peter says, this that you're seeing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. This isn't about our future. He's saying, this is what's happening right now in the first century. This is the promise of the spirit of God that was coming. And your young men shall see visions and dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And, and lastly, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, cloud and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood red. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Well, actually it did. And we'll go over that shortly in, in, you know, at the end of this discussion. But my point is, is that did happen within the, the generation, right? Um, but, but that's the point is, what I'm getting at is the last days are the last days of the old covenant. And that's the period of 40 years that we, we talked about. Okay. It's a transition period, in other words. So the 40-year generation is the last days of the old covenant. When the old covenant's dying out, and finally ultimately destroyed in the, in the temple. And the new covenant has, has been initiated, but not fully consummated with, without, while that, that physical temple still standing, right? So that's what the last days is about, the end of the age. It's the end of the old covenant age and the, and the last days of the old covenant. Now people say, yeah, but his coming, he didn't come. We'll get to that. 
Right now, I'll just bump through this first part because nowadays some scholars are now admitting this first passage is about the first century, but the next passages aren't, right? So okay. you know, there's all kinds of interpretations there, but here's, here's an interesting, I, I remember um, someone once challenged me and, and people always challenge, you know, uh, well, actually before I get there, many false prophets will arise and there's another passage where he says, you know, come out to the desert, right? I think it's in another chapter. Um, maybe it's maybe it's Luke 20, 21 or so, um, where he talks about how uh, lead you to stray. The time is at hand. Um, anyway, uh, it's saying that that the false Christ will arise and and will say, come out into the desert. Well, you know, the desert is always a place where, you know, false prophets come, but mostly in the ancient world, for sure. Nowadays, I don't know that that's needed, right? Because most of our false prophets, they, well, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe they might go out to a desert to get away from everybody. But it was particularly relevant in the first century because, in fact, Josephus writes about uh, many false prophets, you know, how I mentioned that the Jews rose up and there were many factions that were rising up against Rome. Some of them were called zealots, some were mm -hmm. called sicarii, um, and then some of them were just bandits that were taking advantage of it. But the point is, there were also some of these men who, who because they believed that Messiah was, they did not believe in Jesus, but they believed Messiah was coming because Daniel promised it, and this was the time period. Those were the ones that, you know, um, Josephus writes about some of them saying, you know, going out into the desert, and, and I, am, I am Messiah, and I will part the Jordan and all this kind of stuff. So he talks about examples of false prophets in the wilderness, which okay. fits it perfectly, right? And so, um, but then people say, yeah, but what about verse 14? The gospel will be proclaimed through a whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, that obviously hasn't happened yet. Aha, whenever someone says that, they're assuming something, aren't they? So here's the thing. Um, it again, when we're assuming with ours, we read that through through our English interpretation, and it, it's not a very good uh, translation. Uh, first of all, it says um, uh, the gospel. Oh, okay, so there's this belief that well, you know, uh, uh, until they hear, the, not everyone in the world has heard the gospel. Uh, there are some nations that haven't. Uh, uh oh, my battery's running down. I might have to take a moment to plug in my my. Uh, phone here well I'll as you're doing that i'm minutes. picturing you know we were in israel this spring and i you know we obviously went to you know masada and i picture like the zealots that you know were in the desert then uh you know and then ended up you know raiding and taking over you know masada and you know uh stayed there and, and as a like a fortress there's a that probably have been you know something josephus would have even been writing about yes yes exactly how do i look am i okay here you oh, look good. just as it. good as you did before got, no better no worse. I got, <laughs> okay all right so um this is an interesting thing because it sounds like you know only through television can can the whole world receive the gospel. Well, the problem is, you guys, there are always there are literally millions of people always being born. There will never be a time where every single person on earth will have heard the gospel. This is another modernist assumption that just isn't biblical. It, you know, we think in these scientific terms of every single person has to hear the gospel, or it won't be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's not true. You can be proclaimed throughout the whole world, and not necessarily everyone hear it. That's clearly the case here. And let me explain. Be proclaim the gospel proclaimed throughout the whole world. That word for whole world, again, remembering they did not, they did not know 
many of them did not understand the the word world as being a globe, right, or an earth. They only knew about uh, ancient Rome was really the world to them. And as a matter of fact, in the Bible, the word for whole world is oikumene, and it is used in other places very clearly to refer to the known Roman world, the inhabited empire. Luke 2.1, the birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Mm, yeah, that good. word world is oikumene. Did Caesar Augustus register people in South America? No. He, it, he's talking about the Roman Empire. Yeah. So the, the whole world, we cannot put our modern scientific uh, exaggeration or, or actually precision on these words. They're, they're I don't even conceptual. think I could tell you one song by Beyonce. <laughs> um, and, and I think she's, she's projected throughout the whole world. Yeah. I've heard of That's her, true. but I couldn't tell you one song. Yeah. Um, Acts 24. We have found this, uh, I don't know who, who's talking here, but we have found this man of plague, one who stirs up, I think they're talking about Paul. He stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. So they're talking about some apostle. I, I, is that Paul? I, I don't know. Uh, I should know, right? Fe uh, yeah, Paul. So they're talking about Paul. And it's like, okay, he didn't, the whole world, the Oikumeni is talking about the Roman Empire. But more importantly, the Bible itself actually already says the gospel has gone throughout the whole world. It says it's been fulfilled. And that's what shocks a lot of Christians who don't know about it. Colossians 1, 5 through 6, because the hope laid up for you is in heaven, and you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Mm. So the Bible says, self already says the gospel has gone out into the whole world. And by the way, that's not the only location. It says uh, Romans 1.18 or 1.8. I thank God for Jesus Christ because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. There it is again. Um, yeah. But it goes, so, it goes even further than that. It, it, it even, the Bible talks about like, um, it's very interesting, as if the gospel has gone out to all creation. That's pretty extreme exaggeration, right? Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith and the hope of the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now, Christians who want to be so uh, taking the Bible literally and as it precisely is, as it says, we'll have to see it and go in all creation under heaven. That, that means however you're interpreting that passage, you have to say the Bible has said the gospel has gone to all creation under all heaven. Now, I'm, what I would say is it's obviously an idiom or a, a, a hyperbole describing how it's gone out everywhere that we know of, you know? Yeah. Um, and even, but not only that, it doesn't stop there. It said, the Bible says that the gospel has gone out to all the cosmos. And the cosmos is even a, you know, is a bigger term. It says Romans 1.8. Uh, oh, this is what I, actually, this is what I already read. But your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That world is, that word is cosmos, which is not the universe like we understand it as a physical universe. It, the cosmos really is the world order, meaning like sort of like the world society, right? Um, it's gone out into all the earth. I, I, look, I could keep going. You, you get the point here, right? Yeah. The Bible has already says it's gone out, you know, and to all the nations. The gospel has gone out 
into all the nations. And there's a lot of references now, like, well, now because of the internet, because of YouTube, because of this and that, you know, we're now in a place where it can be, you know, so that, that can only be fulfilled now, not then. Oh, but here's another thing too, but it says to all nations. Well, the Bible says that too. Think about this. Um, Romans 16, 25. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel that was kept secret, has now been disclosed through prophetic writings, be, be made known, has been made known to all nations. The Bible itself has said that has been fulfilled. So if you're going to take the Bible literally, then you have to say, well, the Bible says literally that it's been fulfilled. But it makes sense, then you have to adjust. Okay, it's not being scientifically precise. It's idioms of language. So therefore, we need to understand prophecy in that context. Then the end shall come. The end of what? The end of the world? The end of history? No, no. The end is a, is a short, the end of what? Well, we've already talked about this, the end of the age, the end of the, the old covenant. So you can't just see, read the end and assume it's the end of everything because it's not contextually. So does this, is this making some sense? This is, the, this is the easy passage to sort of make a point that, you know, biblically speaking, this is about the first century. So much so that even scholars who, who don't like this view have had to admit that, yeah, that's probably what it's about. <laughs> and now they say, ah, but verse 15, at verse 15, it switches, and now it's in the future, even though of, there's no— Of Matthew 24. Of Matthew 24. Okay. We're going to talk about the abomination of desolation. Is make sure also in here we get to the, the R word. Which is rapture? That one. Oh, boy. Yeah. At least I'll you got to like, at least you got to mention it and touch on it because otherwise everybody's going to, I'm going to get I so will. much hate. I will. I will. Okay. So this is interesting because uh, there's, there's a lot behind this too, but um, I'm, I'm going to try to keep 15. It. Yep. I'm going to try to keep it brief so I can keep moving. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, let when the one who's field not go back, uh, pray that your flight uh, may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. We'll, we'll, we'll stop right there. So many people, well, that hasn't happened yet. Well, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know what abomination actually means? Well, you do a study of the abomination. And there's all different interpretations of it, but you know what? Uh, and, and even within my viewpoint, there are different views about what that means. But let me just sort of, uh, I'm, I'm going to take the easy route on this one because it, it's, it's sort of like there's another passage where Jesus tells us what it means. <laughs> We've already read it. Luke 21, it's the same sermon, but there's he's saying things a little differently and understand this Matthew is written to Jews. It's heavily Jewish symbolism. So they use Jewish concepts, abomination of desolation, but Luke is writing to mostly Gentiles and Gentiles wouldn't know okay. Jewish concepts as well. Like abomination of desolation. What's that? So I think Luke is sort of, he's giving the same sermon, talking about the same sermon. You can compare it. Uh, but he, he says something differently. He says, instead of when the abomination of desolation is, standing where it ought not. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that it's desolation is near. Ah, there's that word desolation. So, so I think Luke is basically saying the abomination of desolation is 
uh, Jerusalem surrounded by pagan armies in particular, because the original abomination of desolation in, in Daniel, as you know, it's referring to that pagan, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And he was a pagan and he, he was a abomination of desolation to God. So, so Jesus is saying the abomination of desolation is when Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And that's when the desolation is near. And we've already set up, we've already proven from the text that the desolation of Jerusalem happened in AD 70. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So, However, however you're going to interpret it, Jesus himself has said the abomination of desolation is Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that happened in AD 70. But here's the other component of that. If you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Those are on a housetop. Don't go down and take, just leave. If you're in the field, leave. Like, that can't happen today. <laughs> if you, you can't flee the mountains and get away from their vision of the Antichrist who's taken over the world with all the technology, fleeing to the mountains isn't going to help you at all, right? And, 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 and besides, uh, pray this not on winter or Sabbath. Who keeps that any, these days anyway? But yeah. it does make sense in the first century because, oh, and, and pregnant women, right? Because Rome was coming down upon Jerusalem, and when they found out that was happening, they had to get out because it was happening. And, they, and actually, there is a, um, a famous uh, Christian ancient church father who who writes about that this this event actually did happen um and it's eusebius in his histories three five he says the people of the church in jerusalem had been commanded by revelation um before the war war of, of rome to leave the city and dwell in a certain town of perea called pella and when those that believed in christ had come from thither from jerusalem as the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, they were entirely destitute of holy men. The judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against the Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. So Eusebius was clearly saying that this passage in Matthew was fulfilled because the Christians did escape from Jerusalem. So here's the key. Jesus is saying judgment is coming and you know it, so get out of the city. And the Christians did leave the city of Jerusalem, and they had time back then, and they could hide in the mountains back then, but it would be of no value now. And Sabbath was often, they kept the Sabbath that, at that time, and so it was a very yeah. uh, difficult thing to, to do for them to do if they had to do that, right? And you'd been able to know days or maybe weeks before if a large army was coming, you know, it, it, those are the kind of You would have time. Word, now word you would come, yeah. Now it'd yeah, just by be the way, a, a jet or something. Yeah, and- Remember, this is still all about Jerusalem, isn't it? This is still all about Jerusalem being destroyed. So the context just continues to reiterate. Now you get to the next one, though, where it goes, ah, but then there will be great tribulation. Now we're, now the great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the elect, those days will be cut short. So... Oh, after that is the next passage that I was knew I was looking for it, where it says, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, there he is, don't believe it. And if they perform great signs, uh, and if they say, look, he is in the wilderness, do, do not go out. That's right after what we're talking about here. So that's where that passage was. Okay. And that was applied to the first century. So great tribulation. Okay. All right. Great tribulation has obviously never happened. And I get lots of people telling me this all the time saying like, like, well, that obviously hasn't happened yet because nothing pales compared to this. The Holocaust is not as bad as this. Nothing is as bad as this. Well, actually, if you look in the text, uh, you realize that it actually did happen. And their assumptions about how the greatness of the tribulation are misinterpreted. 
Okay. He says, such has not been from the beginning of the world now, nor shall ever be. So they're thinking like, well, this is, this is now a literalism again. This is a literalism. And so World War II wasn't even this, or, or I'm sorry, um, uh, World War II was, was worse. Th- you know, like if you're saying this happened in the first century, I can point to a lot of things like World War II and the Holocaust who were worse than that century. No, you can't because those were not as, not as bad spiritually speaking. And the Bible is talking about history spiritually from the perspective of God and his covenant. He's not talking about from the perspective of world wars and stuff like that. He's talking about spiritual, and I'll prove it right now. Such has not been from the beginning of the world now, no, never will be. This is a idiom. It's not a, it's not a scientific literalism. It's an idiom that has actually been used in the Bible and in different ways to prove that it's not talking about literalism. And get a load of this. The, it, it's used of the first... Okay, the temple's going to be destroyed, right? And now he's reiterating a language that Ezekiel used when the first temple was destroyed. We're now in the second temple in the first century. But the first temple back in was destroyed in five, uh, 538 BC. The siege of Jerusalem started in 538 BC. And the temple was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And here's what Ezekiel says. Because of all your abominations, talking to Israel, there it is again, abominations. Because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. There it is, the same language. But think about this. If you read back in Ezekiel, that's 5.9, the context is he's talking about God's going to judge you, destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And he's using the same language of the same context. So now Jesus is saying the same language because he's mimicking Ezekiel, isn't he, about the destruction of the temple, isn't he? But if you take it literally, you have to say, well, Ezekiel's saying it will never do it again. But it, Jesus is clearly saying it will happen again. So if you take these terms literally, you're in deep trouble. You're saying the Bible contradicts itself. And I'm saying it doesn't because it's not literal. It's hyperbole. And it's talking about the spiritual seriousness of this event. Okay. You know, I, um, and obviously I, I don't believe God contradicts himself. So we always use idioms like, you know, I mean, even still today we use idioms that are like extreme and hyperbolic, right? You know, like the whole world blew up on at 9-11, you know, or whatever. The world turned upside down at 9-11 or this was the worst murder. This was the crime of the century. How many times have you heard the crime of the century, you know? And so it's like, this is common language. It's not just ancient, but as a matter of fact, when you see the scripture itself using the language, what, what more can you say? In Daniel 9, 12, again, Daniel's also referring to the same destruction of Jerusalem and the temple of the first, of the first uh, temple. He says, Daniel 9, 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us a great calamity. He's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. There it is again. It's the same hyperbolic language. Now, um, so that's just the setup for that phrase. There's other examples where like, um, you know, in the Bible, it talks about um, it, this kind of hyperbole is used a lot. Um, like, like percentage of Jews. I mean, I, I'm just kind of speculating here, but like how big was Jerusalem in this time? Was it maybe a million people? I don't know. I'm just guessing. Yeah. I don't so, know at that time, but I mean, percentage, I mean, how many were killed then, you know, when, when, when Rome yeah. destroyed Jerusalem, I mean, oh, like, like in ratio it probably was worse than yeah, the yeah. Holocaust. 
No, no. Um, Ju- uh, Josephus says about a million were killed, and then several million were taken off into um, slavery. So, so but I mean, but here's but, my but point. In ra- but in ratio of how many Jews there, there were, it was you know it was probably. Oh, but in terms of ratio, yeah, maybe. In terms of but, percentage of But it doesn't have to be. My point is, is this is talking spiritually. God talks spiritually. In other words, all, you know, n- nothing has been done like this from the beginning of the world now, nor ever will be. What are you talking about? Lots of things have been done that have been worse than that through history. Mm. But not if you're God talking about, no, what's done to my, my people and to my holy temple that's the most important thing. Nothing else is like it. You see what I'm saying? The language God, when God talks about uh, Israel and Jerusalem, it's hyperbolic as if it's the only most important. The Bible even talks about the Jerusalem as being the center of the world. It's not the center of the world, literally or physically. It is spiritually. So yes, yeah. when God talks about his covenant of people, he uses the language that says it's the most important thing because it is to him, right? So that's what this language is clearly talking about, not physical hyper-literalism. It's talking about the spiritual importance of it. But even then, it uses it in, in contradictory ways if you take it literally in the Bible. The only way to understand it then is to understand it as an idiom that just talks about this is so serious that it is, it is, it is just nothing, almost nothing else is like it. Mm-hmm. But it happens multiple times. So... Um, then we got the, this is the Christ. And, and then he goes, oh, don't believe him. And then he goes, okay, now, now we get to the passage where it says, for as lightning comes from the east and shines in the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's all kinds of stuff we can go into there, but I won't. Because now I want to get to the part where now people say, well, okay. Oh, well, by the way, there's one other little thing <laughs> that I do want to jump to. Because this is fun. This is my funnest passage. <laughs> Uh, when it comes to tribulation, because Christians just get just, I was blown over when I had to face it. It's like Revelation one, John writing the revelation. And what does he write in chapter one, verse nine? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance uh, was on the island of Patmos. John himself is saying, I and you are in the tribulation right now. And people say, well, that's not the tribulation. That's just a tribulation because tribulation will come. Actually, in the Greek, it's literally the tribulation. Ho, I don't know what the tribulation word is, but the word ho is before it, which is the particle the, which which gets very distinct. This is not just general tribulation. This is the tribulation that we've been talking about. And so he himself says it's happening in the first century. So this is what I find so fascinating is how many of these passages people say, well, this hasn't happened yet. And, and, and here's how it's, and they speculate about what it's going to be like. But here you have actual Bible passages over and over again that say it's fulfilled in the first century. So what more do you need? Why would you keep speculating that it's going to happen if, when it says it's happened? This is, this is how I'm, I'm looking at it, you know? And, and ironically, with some of the most uh, treasured theological symbols, abomination of desolation, great tribulation. And now we're going to talk about the coming of the Son of Man. And that too actually happened in the first century. And this is the passage that was 
as I was studying and, and coming to this view and understanding, you know, I started, this was the hardest passage for me at first, or, or in the end, this was the hardest passage for me to accept and understand that the coming of the Son of Man occurred in the first century. And, and the reason why was, again, because of, of our, um, our modern assumptions of what this means, we don't realize we've been, you know, we've been indoctrinated to think one way. We don't realize there's lots of other ways of understanding this that are well, better and more. I mean, I, I grew up listening to a lot of in my family and stuff was a lot of Southern gospel songs, you know, quartets and things like mm-hmm. this. This kind of crushes almost, almost all those songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I, I, I mean, a lot of just the, this, the little, the, the symbology that's, that's worded in there about what's to come and what's going yeah. to happen. It's all kind of, you know, yeah. rooted in that. Now, you know, I need to take a moment now and point out the fact that, okay, look, I know, again, this is so shocking to so many people, although more people are, are hearing this viewpoint, and now the futurists are are trying to, to, to address, because they haven't addressed it for so long, but more people are coming to this viewpoint. And I want to take this moment to point out that this isn't something that's new. Uh, people try to say, oh, this is new. This just started with the Jesuit Al- Alcazar and the 17th century, something like that. No, no, it's it's been around longer than that. All the views have been around in different ways throughout history, so it's not a matter of which one, which view is first. Um, and and secondly, it's not um, it's not heretical because some of the greatest minds in, in theological minds in history have believed it, um, and even even recent ones, such as R.C. Sproul, who recently passed away. He was one of the greatest uh, evangelical theologians of the 20th century. 20, yeah, the 20th century. And uh, he believed what I've been telling you and what I'm going to continue to tell you. He believed and argued for it. Well, as N.T. Wright, another currently living famous theologian, argues for this as well. So this isn't, you know, be careful when people start to try to dismiss this viewpoint, which is called preterism. You know what? Maybe I maybe I haven't even I I apologize if I haven't really uh, defined it that way yet. Use that word. Um, that's a catch-all word that that is used of it. Preterism is a word is 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 a way to describe the viewpoint I'm telling you. What that means is the word preterism is Latin for past. So past tense, right? So okay. when we're saying preterism, it, it's saying the Bible prophecies of the last days are not in the future. They're in the past. They've been fulfilled in the past. But now there are different versions of preterism. There are partial preterism, which means most of the passages, like the ones I'm telling you, have been fulfilled. But there are some people who believe, but there's still some that have yet to be fulfilled. Uh, those are called partial preterists. Some say are called full preterists, and they will argue that everything, including uh, this, the second coming, uh, like, for instance, par- partial preterists will say, what I'm telling you is true. Christ came, and we'll see that. Um, in a minute, but Christ came in the first century, but that's not the second coming. That's just a coming in judgment. There's still a future second coming, a future resurrection and a future judgment and all that. But then there are some who say, no, no, that was the second coming. And that was all fulfilled spiritually in that first century. And look, there's a lot of disagreement even within that camp. So I'm just going, I'm just going to, um, I'm going to say that, you know, you, you can, you can believe what everything I'm telling you and still maintain a standard Christian belief that there's still a second coming in our future and a final resurrection and judgment. Um, all the passages are not been fulfilled, but this has been fulfilled in the first century. You can believe that way. So all I'm saying is don't, don't jump to conclusions and recognize that 
there are mainly godly men and scholars who are much smarter than you and I who do support this. So don't listen to the, I get this because so many people, they just dismiss prejudice. Oh, prejudice, uh, that's a new view. And they don't realize, no, actually dispensationalism is a new view. That's what came in the 19th century. You know, say, up, until, um, up until about when? I mean, because I've, I've heard people references. I think even Johnny Inlow uh, was interviewed by uh, uh, Steve Schultz on Elijah Streams. And they kind of referenced this, but it was like, Sure, after the Civil War, maybe something like that, late 1800s. You, you mean dispensationalism? Yeah, Dar- Dar- Darby and that. Yeah, that view where you know the um, the whole dispensational view. But look, or at least popularized. Yeah, it was, I think it was like 1800s. I, I'm not as much of a, a scholar on that kind of stuff, but but I do know that um, even then, a lot of its components, though, there are pieces of it that. Christians have believed long before that, but just this particular, you know, rapture will happen and and Christians will be rescued out. And then the antichrist will come and then seven years and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. that stuff was, was, uh, mostly rooted in that, that, um, that time period from starting from Darby, but it doesn't matter because even, even if it did, I don't care if it's true, it's true. It doesn't matter how late it comes. So I don't, I don't generally use the argument of, when these theories came to, I use the Bible because it's the Bible that determines yeah. not the church, you know, and meant church has been wrong about a lot of things throughout history. Right. So, so, yeah. but if you're going to argue history, at least get that part right. And, but and this isn't something that, that, that you, you came up with on some uh, retreat yes. uh, five years yeah. ago or, and wrote these books. I've even heard people say, you know, none of the church fathers believe this. Well, actually a lot of church fathers believed different pieces and components of these, uh, such that Nero was the antichrist or Matthew 24 was fulfilled. Um, so there are, this view has existed. Um, some examples of who believe some of these preterist views were St. John Chrysostom, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, Tertullian, Epiphan- Epiphanes, Eusebius of Pamphilus, St. Augustine, Origen. A lot of them had uh, preterist views of passage, not all, but of passages that today people assume, well, that's happened. That's not for our future yet, right? So the point here is, is preterism is a general t- all term that I'll use for my viewpoint because it does stand against the futuristic viewpoint that tends to believe the last days are in our future. I believe the last days are in the past. So passages related to last days are, have been fulfilled. Um, and so don't listen to people who just, just dismiss it with this like, oh, it's, you know, most people didn't never believe that until recent and blah, blah, blah. It, it just, it's, it's irrelevant. What matters is, is it biblical? And, yeah. and people, church has been wrong about different biblical views. And so, so prove it from the Bible. Did you hear that? Uh, Can you some, hear me? Yeah, I hear you fine. Uh-huh. Okay. I apologize. Uh, what happened was I had a phone call coming in. And so sometimes I wonder if that interrupts me on, on here, but I guess not. So that's good. Nope. Um, all right. So I, you know, um, so yeah, so, so preterism is, is a good catch-all term. Um, and also another thing I want to say is I have almost, almost never heard another thing that I want to challenge my listeners here is if you go to other people, what is this preterism? And you go to people who are criticizing it. Listen, every nine times out of 10, they're not, they don't understand it correctly. I, every, most everyone I have talked to about preterism, they do not understand it correctly. So they're saying things that aren't true. Mm. And so I would be very careful about listening to critiques of it because they're mostly wrong in their, in their understanding of preterism. Go and read a preterist text, read what they are arguing, read an opposing viewpoint. Um, 
And, and like I said, my book is a great way to start. Um, End Times Bible Prophecy. It's not what they told you. It's, it's a good, fair intro to this, to this stuff, to this viewpoint. Uh, but be careful when you're listening to propagandists who are critiquing it. Did some of this become yeah. just so popular because, you know, I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, the, 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 the Thief in the Night movie, you know, where the, yeah. the lady's husband yeah. got saved and she didn't, and she wakes up and his razor's in the sink yeah, yeah. and it's buzzing. I mean, I, mean, I that, saw that when I was a kid, man. That oh, was great. It, it scared me so bad as a kid. I would come in our house if my mom wasn't around or something. I'd, I would be like, oh, no. You know, I mean, I, I was, yeah. you know, but, but it was very effective from an evangelism standpoint. Yeah. You know, and so it, yeah. is, is that maybe part of it? That kind of what really. Do, do that, the ends that, justify the means? I, yeah. You know, was it that um, kind of a just it made sense from yeah. a pastoral altar call yeah. kind of a vibe? And it just was so effective so. and just made yeah. enough sense. Yeah, but the ends don't justify the means, does it? And you know what? Here's the problem. And this, again, a great, well-timed question. Um, it brings up the problem with the futurism that that has been going on um, is that too many Christians have really been misinterpreting th their the Bible through these viewpoints, and when they prove to be wrong, as they have through all of history, right? I mean, for a thousand years, Christians have been saying, we're the last generation. All this is happening. Sure. You know, Hitler's the Antichrist. Mussolini's the Antichrist. Obama's the Antichrist. But go back. It goes on and on. And so all of them believing that it's in our future, they were always wrong. And the problem is more and more Christians are starting to see this. And, and they're starting to lose their faith because they're, they have only been told this is what the Bible's saying. They haven't been told this is our interpretation of prophecy, which is one of many. And it's been wrong for a thousand years. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so the argument is always, well, yeah, yeah, they've been wrong, but now we're right. Well, okay, logically that's possible. But if you, if you think more consistently and think, but look, if the view has to keep changing every 10 years and has done so for a thousand years, or even let's just go back a hundred years, right? If the view has been changing constantly, Maybe it's not the individual interpretations that are wrong. Maybe it's the view itself. Mm. That's, that's the only challenge I want to give to people to just consider looking and reading up other views of eschatology. And by the way, it doesn't have to just be mine. Read others. There's, there's an idealistic view that's more, more general and symbolic. And they believe that, you know, prophecy is more generally about history or whatever. Um, read them all, you know, read different viewpoints, but read them from the people who believe in them. Because when you keep reading from these critiquers, they're all, they're all um, just bound up in their own um, uh, world, uh, their worldview. So they're reinterpreting things incorrectly about other viewpoints. Then they, they've always gotten my viewpoint wrong. That's, that's all do, I know. Do you, do you think also it could have something to do with just a, the natural arrogance of man in general, because everybody kind of thinks they're on like this long train and they're, you're at the front car and everybody before you is in a car behind you. And cause you hear people, college students today talk about Thomas Jefferson, like he's an idiot, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, man, these yeah. guys, these guys spoke you know, several yeah, languages and like everybody that's thinks a, everything, everything five minutes before you was just irrelevant. And now this is the moment, you know, like that's a good point. That's a good expression of what I'm, of what I'm getting at. You're right. It's like, stop thinking that it's, it's really the supreme cultural imperialism. It's like you are thinking you are the supreme apex of, of knowledge and wisdom. And like everyone before you is nothing. It's just like, wow, you know, Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's the same mentality that, that has infected what I call the Bible prophecy industrial complex. In other words, <laughs> in other words, there's a what lot a of money. Here's the, here's the problem. When you, 
I, I realize that this is why this is why the news is all um, everything in the news that sells. If it bleeds, it leads. Uh, it's all we all know this now yeah. that they're only going when you're only going for ratings, you end up doing all negative things and the world is ending because uh, that's what grabs people and that's what interests them. And people are naturally drawn to that stuff. And so therefore, if you're th that's why all these viewpoints of the future like I said, you know, you go back and read Lake Great Planet Earth, or even by now, you know, maybe in the next 10 years, Left Behind is going to be way outdated. It's like, but it keeps reselling every, you know, every generation. They just make up new interpretations. Yeah. Oh, it's not Russia. Now it's China. Oh, now it's Islam. It's just like, and they don't, they're never accountable. This is the thing that really bothered me about it was when I, two things. One is when I started learning preterism, I reacted as if this is heresy because I had been programmed too. But then I started looking and realizing, Oh, what they were telling me was just normal interpretation of the Bible was just one view of several major views and they're wrong all the time. So maybe I want to hear what these other guys have to say, you know, and then, and, and the other thing was just the, this, this, yeah, like you said, the arrogance of just, you know, responding with the heresy. So, um, uh, yeah. What else about this futurism? Oh, so yeah. So these not, you know, uh, books that have been read, written over and over again, you know, last day, uh, uh, late great planet earth, you know, go back to all those time periods, Christ will return in 88, you know, and everyone says, Oh, but they're all wrong, but I'm right. You know, but you're just doing the same thing they did. And my mm -hmm. point here is these people never are held accountable there. It is still the biggest moneymaker. Like you write a book about talking about all oh, the mark of the beast is AI and you'll make a gazillion dollars. I, you know, people think, well, claim oh, I'm doing it for the money. I'm not I'm doing it because I believe in it. I'm not making my, my end times book make the least amount of money of all my books <laughs> because people, people don't like that view. Right. Uh, now, by the way, I, I, I hope they sell more and I'm trying to get to sell more. So I want to sell more, but, but what I'm saying is there's no money in my interpretation, but there's lots of money in the other interpretation. And I'm not saying it's wrong to make money, but I am just saying that's a caution to say, to, to challenge us that why do we keep giving people our money who are wrong and end up being false prophets. Hal Lindsey was a false prophet. You know, even Chuck Smith, he was a false prophet because he said Christ was coming before the end of the eighties. And, but yet they just ignore it and just keep moving on all. Oh, and they, and Hal Lindsey still has a ministry today talking about the last days and end times. And if they were in the old Testament, a false prophet would have been executed. And I'm not saying this is what we should do, but what I'm saying is the seriousness of what's going on in, in this Bible prophecy industrial complex, it's serious to God. And, 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 and what I'm getting to is, so these, there's a lot of Christians who are losing their faith now. Part of the Christian deconstruction is, you know, Jesus was wrong. Everyone's saying he's, you know, he's supposed to return and he never returns and everything, they just keep changing. So all this Bible stuff must be wrong. Yeah, so, no, it's that. a wrong in interpretation. And, uh, so a lot of Christians are, are losing. Well, in fact, that happened. I, I remember hearing about a story in history of the Chinese Christians when they were first evangelizing. They were told about this stuff. And then when their tribulation came and persecuted and Christ never came, a lot of G, uh, uh, Chinese Christians lost their faith because of it. You know, so so the, the false prophecy of these futurists uh, should be taken more seriously and, and made to accountable. But they're not, and they're still selling a lot of money. Why though? Because it's always exciting to think, oh, AI fulfills prophecy. 
How does it fulfill prophecy? And then that confirms that we are the chosen generation. We're special, you know, we're the end times or whatever. I, I understand that desire because we all want to be special and significant to God, but it's wrong and we shouldn't have that. And we should just care what does the scripture say? And, and that's what we should stick with. And that's what I'm sticking with. So, so there's a whole another section you said we could do on revelation and, and maybe mm -hmm. that will be, it's, it's We're own, not done yet. that'll be its own thing. So still driving it in this part. If, yeah. if, and, and, and that, if you want to get to this later, but if, if I'm, if I'm taking a, a kid's toy away from him and giving him nothing, yeah. he's going to sit there and what cry. Are you gonna, yeah. Like, what am I going to give him in response? You just took, you just took right. away, you know, their, their slinky. So now what? Yeah. I took away their hope. I actually took away false hope. Let me, let me explain. Hope's hope, man. Now they got nothing. I, uh, yeah, I hear you. Um, and by the way, I went through that experience myself, but let me finalize this passage with okay. the most difficult passage at the time. But now after studying the Old Testament context of the coming of the Son of Man, I now think for me personally, this is the easiest passage to understand as, as applying in the first century. But that's only because I now interpret Bible prophecy through the lens of symbolism from the Old Testament. In other words, New Testament prophets like Jesus and others are using Old Testament concepts. Once you go back and study what they meant in the Old Testament, you now understand what they mean in the New Testament. And this is, is one of the strongest examples of that. So he says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay, so I proved the tribulation was the first century. So he's still in the first century, folks. Immediately after that, what happens? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, that obviously hasn't happened yet. Oh, uh, well, what do you know when someone says that? Well, here's the thing. This language is used a lot in prophecy. Hang on, I got that down. When anybody says that hasn't happened yet, it means a person is unaware of their own assumptions. Yes, Brian exactly. Exactly. Um, and interestingly, I call this uh, cosmic collapse or collapsing universe imagery. I got that from Gary DeMar, collapsing universe uh, sun being darkened, stars falling from the sky. This is language that's used in prophecy over and over again. And if you look into the Old Testament, you find out what this stuff was referred to. As a matter of fact, I, I even think that Jesus is quoting using the same language from Isaiah uh, of, of what Isaiah used. Let's, let's jump there. In Isaiah 13, verses 10. First of all, know that Isaiah 13 is talking about Babylon being destroyed by the Medes in 537 BC. That's the context. Okay. So in other words, Medes came and, or Babylon came and, you know, you know, destroyed uh, Israel and Jerusalem, but now the Medes, God's prophesying, but the Medes are going to take out Babylon. And what does he say? For the stars of the heaven and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark in the rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for the iniquity. Is he talking about the end of the world? No, he's talking about um, 537 BC, Babylon being destroyed. So again, hyperbolic language, destroying, punishing the world. No, he's punishing the, the known world of the time, uh, the ruling powers. I will put an end to the pomp in the air. Okay, so that stars and, and heavens falling, not giving their light and all that stuff, it's clearly a description about a historical event that we know already happened. And those things did not happen. <laughs> uh, so they are spiritual. But here's another thing. We, we showed in, in the last, and this gets back to the Nephilim stuff. This is another element of that. 
In the last discussion we had, I talked a little bit about how the stars were understood as divinities in the Bible as well as other ancient ancient um, um, cultures. Stars were used were referred to as divinities of some kind, deities, and so um, and and so uh, uh, the heavenly powers, in other words. And so when and, and what do we say that that heavenly powers were linked to earth? So when earth earthly powers fell, heavenly powers fell. Right, Daniel okay. ten, king of Persia, king of Greece. The sun will be dark and and the, and the stars fall from heaven. He's saying that those heavenly powers are falling to earth. They are losing their power because of the earthly uh, war that's going on. So this is also a reference to the sort of the. The spiritual power is falling. This is why I think also think that um, this is kind of connected to the end of the old covenant. And what was under the old covenant? Uh, according to Moses, the watchers over the nations, right? So they're going to lose their powers. But more specifically, this hmm. language is also used against Israel. Um, there are other chapters. Let's see if I can find another passage. Um, Israel and, okay, I love this one. Um, well, Okay, I'll do Jeremiah. Well, no, no. I'll use one more example of uh, the stars and stuff because there's a lot of examples of this. You got a lot of tools in your belt, man. Yeah, well, these are all, I'm just working from my notes, you know. But ba so Babylon in 587 BC, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and Israel, but it also destroyed Edom. And in Isaiah, he's also talking about God's going to judge Edom as well using Babylon. And what does he say? Isaiah. 34 verse four, all the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll and their host shall fail as the leaves fall from the vine, etc., etc. Oh, And he says, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I've devoted to destruction. Listen, in my book, uh, End Times Bible Prophecy, I list a bunch of these passages and explain them. This is clearly a earthly judgment upon Edom and God is using heavenly language of the collapsing universe to describe the spiritual and earthly powers falling. Right. And so, um, and God, God is actually, you know, uh, God has used it as well of Israel. Um, let's see here. Well, here, here's another just example to get off into, into it. Um, or, or to take a little bit of a branch in Jeremiah four, when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC, Jeremiah, this is how Jeremiah describes this hyperbole, again, hyperbole, exaggerated descriptions of the, of the you know, physical universe to express spiritual seriousness because God's, you know, covenant and his temple are the ultimate spiritual, you know, the ultimate spiritual glory. So if they get destroyed, it's like the earth being destroyed, right? Okay. He says, I looked on the earth and behold, destruction of the temple, and behold, it was without form and void. Where did we hear that phrase before? Genesis 1. In other words, before God, the chaos of Genesis 1, before things were created, that's the term that Jeremiah uses. But he's saying it's happening. It obviously didn't happen. Uh-oh. Don't assume. Uh, remember when someone says, obviously, what are they assuming? Well, look, it was without form and void. So he's saying in 586 BC, the whole creation went back to the chaos. No, that didn't happen. 
So this must be hyperbolic symbolism. The heavens, they had no light. The mountains were quaking. I looked and behold, there was no man. The birds of the air had fled. The fruitful land was a desert. He's, it's like he's undoing creation, isn't he? He's saying the opposite of what Genesis 1 says. There's no man, there's no animal, there's no fruit, there's no, right? So Jeremiah is creatively saying the destruction of the temple by Babylon in 586 BC was like the entire earth going back to a pre-create, was going back to a chaos state. Because Why? Because God's temple was the, was the order of the spiritual, the spiritual order of God's universe, Right? So if that's destroyed, it's like returning creation back to chaos. That is symbolic hyperbole again and again and again. So when you read this in, in New Testament prophecy, on what do we say that from the very start? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is what Jesus said it's about. And so he's saying that is like the destruction of the universe. That's like the destruction of the whole earth. That's like the stars mm -hmm. falling from the sky, right? All right, now it says, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Can you still hear me? Yep, perfect. Can you hear me? Okay, I hit my mic. Uh, they, will see the Son of, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. It will, uh, okay. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. Well, okay. Has that happened yet? Yes, it has. And let me, ex let me explain as quickly as possible here. First of all, I think a better translation, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. No, it's not a sign appearing in heaven. It's, it's a kind of a Greek problem there, but some scholars say it says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Why is this important? Well, because in Matthew 16, 28, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, the son of man, uh, Matthew 16, 27, the son of man is going to come with his angels. There it is. Coming son of man is glory and the father and repay to each according to his deed. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So, um, Right there, remember what we said before, he's talking to these people and he's saying, some of you standing right here will not die. What does that mean? Within the generation, within 40 years, will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this, isn't, this is all over the Bible, this description of his coming as being in the first century. Um, you know, there is, uh, oh, there's even stronger in this. Let me see what I wrote here. Um, Oh, in Mark 9, 1, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, yeah, so, so, um, but there's, oh, there's another passage that is related to- can, can, you, can you unpack that one just a little bit more? Because that's when you do hear reference, you know, uh, about, specifically about John. Um, you know, a little bit of that, I, cause I think then the disciples say that maybe that, that John wasn't ever going to die and, and some of that. And then there's, uh, yeah. so, so what was the fulfillment of that then? 
Was We're it Jesus' resurrection? Okay. All right. I don't want to get no. ahead of it. Yeah. And I apologize. I'm, I think I was kind of going off on, well, no, I'm not really. I'm just showing you that this coming of the Son of Man, there's hints that it's in the first century elsewhere, not just in this one passage. Okay. But, but let's get to what that coming really means. So, um, so oh, but, 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 but what was important to me was, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. What had Jesus been saying all along? I am going to be crowned king and sit on the throne of God. Where's that in heaven? Jews were rejecting that. So he's saying, <clears throat> the proof of what I've been telling you, that I am in heaven, seated on the throne, Right. that this, this thing is the sign. All this stuff that I'm telling you, when it happens, it's the proof. It's the sign that I am in heaven on God's throne that you've rejected, right? Okay, and then he says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Another bad translation, the word earth, uh, gay is, guess, or gay, is not, um, is not earth as globe like we think of it. It's the land. And uh, I don't have time here, but I did a study in my other books. The tribes of the land is a better translation of that. What does okay. that mean? It's not the tribes of all the earth. It's the tribes of the land of Israel. They are the ones who are going to mourn. And where does that come from? Zechariah 12, the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David, uh, the family of the house of Nathan. So these are the tribes of Israel shall mourn. And, and it's interesting because John also refers to this. Whoops. I'll get to that eventually. Um, so, so, so it's the tribes of Israel were mourn, which makes sense. It's not all the Gentile nations. The tribes of the land of Israel are the ones who are rejecting Messiah, right? This is all about the destruction of, of their identity, and they're the ones who are going to suffer and mourn. Uh, yeah. And, and John reiterates this in John 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Oh, who's that? The Romans. Yeah, but the Jews, all the hmm. tribes of the land will wail on account of him. So John is confirming this coming in the clouds is when the tribes of, of Israel, those who pierced him, the first generation of Israel, they're the ones who are going to mourn. So okay. what does this mean for him coming on the clouds then? Is this a literal Jesus coming in surfing on a cumulus nimbus? You know, like, no, no. And people would pop around to other passages like Revelation or something comes on the white horse, but that's a symbolism. That's also symbolism. But the point is, is there is a heavenly reality of Christ. But this concept of coming on the clouds is a very, again, it has Old Testament pre precedence. And when we, instead of thinking, well, coming on the clouds of heaven obviously must be how I perceive it, you know, wait a minute. Coming in the clouds is a symbol of God coming in judgment, usually using pagan armies to judge. In the Old Testament, that's what it means. Let me give you some examples. Okay. So, so in other words, when it says Yahweh comes on the clouds, he's coming to judge a nation or, or, a, or a city or a people, but he doesn't literally do that, right? He, you know, I mean, you don't see him literally on the clouds. It's a, way to, it's a way to judge. First of all, clouds in the ancient world, this is not readily apparent, but to say that you are on the clouds is a sign of divinity. Uh, the Canaanites believed that Baal was the rider of the clouds. 
He was the God who brings the clouds of judgment. Um, it's also, it's, it's a, it's a phrase that refers to storm gods. The Bible also uses that term because it's saying, no, Baal isn't the storm God. Yahweh is the storm God who controls all. He's the one who judges. So it uses the same symbolism, but it to mean, uh, to, to mean something different. But, uh, here's a prophecy about Egypt. God's going to come and judge Egypt using, uh, the Ethiopian powers. This happened in 712 BC, or I'm sorry, it was fulfilled in 711. So the Ethiopians were in alliance with Assyrians and Sargon, and they ended up doing this. The Oracle Concerning Egypt, Isaiah 19, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Did Yahweh come literally on a swift cloud? No, because in Isaiah 20, it describes the, um, the, that very same destruction that, that did occur on Egypt, and it was using the pagan armies. Against Israel, God says, when, when Babylon's going to, the Babylonian armies are going to, destroy Israel in 586 BC, Jeremiah the prophet says, behold, he, Yahweh, comes like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than evils. Woe to us, for we are ruined. And then in verse hmm. 16, warn the nations that he is coming, that's Yahweh, announce to Jerusalem, besiegers from a distant land, they shout against the cities of Judah. He is coming, the besiegers of a... What it's saying there clearly is Yahweh is coming to judge Jerusalem. He's coming in the armies of Babylon, the besiegers from a distant land. Yahweh uses pagan armies to judge various nations, whether it's Israel, Babylon, or Egypt. And this is the same language that's used over and over again in the Old Testament. So when it says um, Yahweh is coming in the clouds, he's A, he's coming in the clouds because he's, he's God, deity is clouds. And it's also B, it's a form of expressing judgment. You come on clouds to judge. When Yahweh came against Nineveh, he used the armies of Babylon to come against Nineveh. In Nahum 1, it says, the Lord is jealous. He is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He by no means cleared the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. It's describing the destruction by Babylon against Nineveh. So God uses pagan armies to be his judgment upon other nations or peoples. And that's described as God coming in the clouds. So, and there's lots more, get my book to get more of that. So when it <laughs> says Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, he's saying Jesus is going to come in judgment against Jerusalem and the temple, like he already said, and he's going to do it through the Roman armies. The Roman armies are God's hands of judgment when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, right? So Jesus came uh, on the clouds to judge Jerusalem and Israel in that first century. So to say that Jesus comes on the clouds is not to say that it has to be happen literally. It's actually a, um, a symbolic expression of coming in judgment. Uh, that's, again, there's more to it than that, but... Um, 
that's sort of the, uh, the, the setup to, before I can finalize about the, the rapture stuff. But did you have any uh, questions about that or no, I'm just thinking about four or five more Southern gospel songs, like stepping on the clouds and some of these that just, you know, you're just totally smashing, but that's fine. Yeah. 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 Clouds are, are form uh, expressions of deity and judgment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, then it says, verse 31, and he will send out his angels, a large trumpet call, gathers elect from the four winds, from one end to, to the other. Many people say, well, that's that's obviously the rapture, right? But he says, you know, learn learn a lesson from the fig tree. And then he goes, um, let me let me jump down. Well, first of all, the he will send out his angels. There, there are different interpretations of this passage, and uh, and I'm open to others who are even within my predator's viewpoint. But right now, as I see this, it, it, it makes sense that he will send out his angels. First of all, the word angels, we already know, means messengers. It, and sometimes Christians are concerned mes- considered messengers, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean these are supernatural beings. A loud trumpet call, gather his elect from the four winds. Um, when, when G- first of all, understanding this historically and theologically, when Jesus uh, destroyed the temple— and that was the final public confirmation of the, the new covenant kingdom. What happened after that? The, the Christians ex- escaped the city. Jews got murdered and put into slavery, but Christians escaped. What happened after that? The gospel started spreading, right? Didn't it? I mean, yeah. af- shortly after that, it spread to all the earth to, to where it became the dominant form right? or the dominant religion, right? So, uh, I understand this as being he sent out his angels, messengers, his Christians with a loud trumpet call. That's a spiritual expression. It doesn't be literal. To gather his elect from the four, four winds. The elect are God's chosen people. Who are those? The people who believe in him. So the Christians go out and preach the gospel message, and God pulls in his elect into the kingdom of God. Um, why? Because that old covenant is completely gone, and the new covenant kingdom is here, and the old covenant powers are judged and gone and now men can now come into God's kingdom. That's how I understand that passage. Um, now, there are, like I said, there are different ways of interpreting that. But another uh, another component of that rapture interpretation is a few verses down where it says, and I think I'll finish with this. It says, uh, verse uh, chapter twenty four, verse uh, forty. You know, they talk about how, um, or actually before that, it would be, be like the coming of the Son of Man. And in those days, uh, verse thirty six. The coming of the hour no one knows, like the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving until Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Is that the rapture? Well, who did he take and swept away in the flood? Not God's people. (laughs) Right. He he, He killed... took away and you know uh the you know the godless right um and he did save noah in the ark but people will say well that's you know uh that's that that's like the people being raptured but the verse says the ones who were swept them all away what he's likening it to are the ones in judgment and then the very next verse confirms that interpretation the swept the taken away is not taken away god's people but taken away those to judge because verse 40 very next verse Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One left. The woman will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will, one left. Um, and people will say, "Well, yes, yeah, see, that's it. People in the field, and it's the rapture, like we see in all the movies. They disappear, and their clothes remain." No, that's not at all what it's saying. This has Old Testament precedent. Remember, 
the stuff I've said about when the first temple was destroyed, Jesus used this is the same language to talk about the second temple being destroyed. Well, guess what happened? The same language was used when this first temple was destroyed. In Jeremiah 6, 11, Therefore I am full of wrath of the Lord, of Yahweh. This is Yahweh talking, prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. I am weary of holding it in. Before hold, I pour it, I'm sorry, pour it out upon the children in the street and the gatherings of young men, both husband and wife, shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over, their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land of Israel, declares the Lord. So the same description was, and what happened in 586 BC, they came and they plucked some people and left others, right? But what did they do with the people they plucked? They brought them to Babylon into judgment. So God is using the same language of one being left and one being taken. The one being taken is being judged, <laughs> not the one being left. The one being taken was judged. So and Jeremiah Jesus 6, 11 is talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming and, and destroying the temple yes. in 586. Yes. So he's referencing that, that one. Okay. Exactly. And, and the same language, Jesus is using the same language. So the people who are taken away are judged. They're not brought to heaven. They're brought to judgment. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's what happened, right? When Roman armies came, they killed a million and they took a bunch of them and brought them into slavery. They left some mm-hmm. and they killed and they killed most and then and then uh, judged most of them. So that's not the rapture. That's the description of that first century. That's a you know. Of course, it goes on. There's a lot, a lot more to say and such. And um, but hopefully this was a. Uh, let, let's put it this way: a uh, there's there's so much more about all of this, but at least hopefully it was a thorough enough summary of this preterist understanding of the first century fulfillment of the last days, such that you people who, who this is new to can at least start to say, okay, if even I don't agree with it, it makes more sense now. And I can see that there, the view is based on the Bible. It's not arbitrary, right. you know? And it, uh, in fact, I would argue it's based more on the Bible than futurists. When futurists say this hasn't happened yet, they have to come up with imaginative interpretations of how it's going to be interpreted in our future. So they're making stuff up. But everything I have to show, everything from scripture and from history, it's a lot harder task. But but I've done that, which shows you I'm basing it on the Bible and, and what's been happening in history. But future scenarios necessarily must just make things up because they don't know if if it's fulfilled, when it's going to be fulfilled or not. Yeah, you're referencing, so, you know, maybe close to a dozen books of the Old Testament yeah. to establish this point, which I think Yeah. And that, by the way, that's it's the thing valid. that really convinced me. It was the scripture that convinced me, that sola scriptura, that, you know, because I everything that I've been critiquing, I, I thought the same way. Come on, surely the gospel hasn't reached the whole world. But then I, when I would see these things in the Bible saying that, it's like, oh, I, I didn't realize that. Well, then I must accept it. I must accept it, you know? And so uh, hopefully this has that force of, I'm at least making my arguments from scripture and it's clearly based on Old Testament precedent, not something I'm making up to 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 spin it from my view. So, so without getting into the whole Revelation series, what can you do for those that are just sitting there, like like uh, you, you, their dad brought him a puppy, they got to have it for about a week, and then he's going to take it back to the pet store. <laughs> like like, what are you going to do? What do you what do you have for them? Oh, 
right. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. So I remember when I, when I came to that realization, I did feel like, wow, my hope was, was gone. I'm like, if this already happened, I was looking forward to that. Yeah. And now I, I felt like it was a big hole and it was, and it was, and it felt scary. Uh, but I realized soon as I studied it more, I realized two things. Number one, um, there, there are still preterist views that will argue this is not about the second coming, but there still is a future second coming. So number one, you don't have to give up your hope in a future second coming. But even apart from that, the futuristic views, you know, now most, now there are different varieties of the rapture, right? But, you know, the dominant view is the pre-tribute, you know, we're going to be raptured away so we don't have to experience the, you know, the wrath of God on earth, right? So it's very much escapist. So really your hope was not in the second coming of Christ. Your hope was in the rapture. Because even those who believe the mid-tribulation rapture, that's not the second coming. Even those who believe in the post-tribulation rapture, that's not the second coming, right? So your hope has never been in the, the second coming. Your hope has been the rapture to be taken away. And... um and I'm very clear, I would very clearly say, yeah, well, there, there is no rapture in our future um, connected to a rise of an antichrist, all that kind of stuff. So realize this, your hope should never have been in a rapture. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Your hope, your hope is in Christ and his redemption that you have won and attained so that when you die, you will be with him. That's what your hope is. And, um, that's what the hope should always be. But secondly, uh, oh, and so, so if your hope is a false hope, it's good that you should feel empty and scared because <laughs> a false hope is not good. It creates all these scenarios of people. Well, let's just let the world go to hell in a handbasket because I'm going to get raptured. You know, why should we bother fighting in these things like abortion and trans ideology? You're you hear just those trying to things. clean up the world. Yeah. You're just going to, you're just trying to clean up something. It's, the Antichrist is going to take power soon. We're going to be raptured soon. Um, it, it really means you have to get about the work of the God's kingdom, which means applying his word to your culture. Now, this is where uh, um, it, it has a, the hope becomes a more positive, victorious view of God's kingdom. Because if you think, think about this, if you're expecting that, that the Antichrist is going to come and we're going to be raptured out of it, then you're, you're basically believing in an escape um, and you're believing that the, the church will be f a failure on earth, right? We're going to have to be rescued out of a failure. Well, it's um, totally gets Jesus. worse and worse and worse. We're more and more compromised. We're less and yeah. less effective until, yes. you know, you're on a corner eventually and then eventually, right? Uh, you know, yeah, no, I, and I realize, minute. I realize some people say, well, yeah, but th if that's what God says, well, then that's, that's the truth. Uh, okay. I realize that, but, but think about it from a different perspective and realize it's a negative view of the um it's a negative view of the kingdom of god it's a failure the church fails and yeah jesus rescues us but the church fails in earth but here's the thing i would argue the bible has a complete different picture throughout all of the texts that it's not a failure it's a, it's it's a successful kingdom on earth i'm not saying that you know everyone gets saved and it's all heaven on earth because there's still sin so it's not perfect but what i'm saying is what do the scriptures say scripture is the authority and you go back, Daniel, Daniel 2. Um, what does he say? The, the, the description of, he, he describes Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he, and he explains it all. The four things of the, four medals of the statue are the four kingdoms to come. And it matched history, didn't it? Babylon, Babylon 
Medo-Persians, Greece, and then ultimately Rome in the first century. And what does he say in, that, in, the, in the days of those kings of the fourth, the fourth kingdom of Rome, ancient Rome? He says that the, um, the Messiah will come, the rock cut without hands, it will hit the stone and crush all that, that rule of Gentile kingdoms over God's people, right? And Messiah came in the first century. So uh, what does it say? Uh, uh, the, the stone that comes without hands. In, in Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will, this is the stone he's talking about, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no hand and broke into pieces the iron. Now, many Christians say, well, yeah, but that's in the future, that's in the future. No, no, no. That's the first century. It happened in, Jesus came in, in Rome, in the times of Rome. Now, they try to, you know, add thousands of years into, into the prophecy that aren't there to try to make, make it a new Rome, a new constitutional Rome. But, but if you just read the text of mm -hmm. Daniel, it's very clear. No, no, it's the ancient Rome that comes after uh, Greece. And that happened. And Messiah came. So it's not about a second coming. That's the first coming. He sets up his kingdom and it will be victorious. It will be, this is what God says. I'm not saying this because I'm a, some kind of a, whatever, a, a, a positive thinking guy or something. I, I don't <laughs> like how negative, I do think the world's pretty negative, you know. But are we going to believe God's word? Or are we going to believe what we think our little myopic little world is? Yeah, it's pretty bad for us now, but the world's a lot bigger than this. If you pull back, there was a time in history when it looked like the whole world was going to blow up during World War II, didn't it? Yeah. Like the, Jesus is coming. He's going to rescue us, right? But you pull back, well, what happened? Well, we won it. We dropped the bomb. We got good one and, and, was, and conquered evil. And so you can't look at, our little thing of history, you've got to pull back and say, history is a roller coaster of ups and downs. But if you pull back, you see the general progression is God's kingdom shall grow to be a mountain to fill the whole earth. That's what Daniel says. Uh, where was that? Um, there it is. Daniel 2, verse 35. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So it doesn't do it in the future. It does it when Messiah comes, but it grows. It's progressive. It's incremental. It might take thousands of years, but the point is, is it's victorious kingdom. And then later in Daniel seven, you know, it describes about his, uh, you know, the ancient of days and son of man comes before a stone. That's the ascension. And that's his ascension as king. And it says the same thing that the, uh, he was given dominion and glory and kingdom. That's Jesus been given kingdom in the first century that all people should serve him. Yeah, it, it, not right away, but it, it progressively grows. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. which shall not pass away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. That's now. That's not in the future. God's kingdom will not be destroyed now. It will be victorious. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a seed. It starts out the smallest in the, king, smallest in the garden, but it grows to become the biggest tree in the garden. It starts like a small little bit of leaven in a lump of dough, but it leavens the whole lump. That's historical, but it's That's progressive. Kidding. It's incremental. And so when people say, oh, yeah, but look how, you know, you're crazy. If you look at how bad the world is and you're saying, you're saying it's, it's, it's getting better. It's like <laughs> you're being myopic. You're looking at our own uh, 
personal experience and you're thinking that that's for all the whole world and you're not seeing God is at work in his kingdom, what happens when his people are persecuted? Oftentimes the church grows out of that and it grows more victorious. And there will be ups and downs in history. So I'm not saying, you know, we're not there yet by any means, you know, but to sit there and look at and at this only the, our one little moment and think things are getting worse when things now, even as bad as they are, are still a hundred times better than they were in the first century. So mm. you've got to, you've got to see the big picture of history and try to understand and, and yeah. take God's word at, at what it says, not what we feel and think we see in our world. By the way, that gives us the motivation to fight all the evil that is trying to take over our culture. We shouldn't sit back and wait for a rapture. We should go out and we should, we should completely get rid of trans ideology from all teaching. We should uh, save infants from being aborted. We should fight the sex trafficking and, and save, rescue this, the, the, the innocents, right? We should go out and do that because that's what makes the world better. As, as we are discipled to obey Christ, we apply his obedience into our lives and to our culture, and that's how we affect the culture. So that's a, that's a quick wrap-up of the viewpoint of the victorious understanding of God's kingdom versus yeah. the failure version of God kingdom, God's kingdom. And there's a lot more to that, but, but that's the sort of uh, introductory I expression. I, I love that because um, I was actually going to ask you like, okay, that's the, the big view then narrow down. Like what does a Monday, what does a Monday look like? You know, on two Mondays. From yeah. now, what does that look like for, for, for Brian, you know? Um, yeah. But I think it's that version of, of taking ground of moving forward. A, a lot of Christians, I think because of this belief and a lot of it, I, I grew up in, it was your focus went more towards just not sinning and kind of hoping for the best. Maybe you're going to support a missionary. And if given the opportunity, you're going to, share the, the gospel, but for the most part, there wasn't a lot of taken ground. It was a little bit more like, you know, if you see like the show Ted Lasso, where he's on like a lose, you know, yeah. like they're, they're trying to lose, you know, and yeah. it's like, it's like you're a part of that kind of an organization, you know, and it's like, well, yeah. just have a good attitude while we're in the midst of all this losing. And yeah. And, and just, I, again, I've been dismissed a lot, you know, when, when people say, oh, that's ridiculous. The world's obviously going to hell in a handbasket. It's like, you you have to you have to be careful and think about your you're being dismissive because you're assuming the failure of God's church, but God's word says that His kingdom will never be destroyed, and you can't say that's His kingdom in the future. It's His kingdom now. It begins. It began in the first century, and it will never be destroyed, and it will never. And that's not because it will fail and then it'll get rescued. No, it says it will become a mountain to fill the whole earth, starting from the first century throughout history. Um, so anyway, yeah, there's the, there's, uh, I, and I do believe that, that your eschatology can affect your behavior. Whatever you think the, the future is determines how you behave now. And I think I gave a good example of, you know, why people don't, when they have the pessimillennialist view, when they have a <laughs> pessimistic view of, of, of the future, they're not going to, to get involved in the fight uh, because they don't believe it's going to get ever get better. But if you have a victorious view of God's kingdom, you will be more likely to, or at least you have the justification for, you know, um, applying God's word. And by the way, I have, I have heard uh, I, vaguely of this thing called the, the seven mountain mandate or something like that. And I looked into it a little bit at once and, and people think, oh, that's dominion theology and all this stuff. It's like, no, no, no. I'm talking basic standard reform theology. Uh, the reformers believe this. They applied God's word and God's law to their society because they believed 
uh, Christian faith is not just about your personal piety and, and then you'll get raptured, but it's you take your personal piety and you apply it to your government, you apply it to the arts, you apply it to education and change the culture around you. You, you reform the culture. That's mm-hmm. standard reform theology, which is a long, illustrious history. Whatever the Seven Mountain Mandates is, is power and all this has nothing to do with what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, I think one's process and one's outcome, you know, it's our, you know, daily, which, which I think it ultimately draws us closer to God. When you're, when you're stepping forward in faith, it creates a higher dependence on God. You know, you do need him in your life, you know? And, uh, um, I, I think you've, you've created a great thing here for people, Brian, you have a, a fictional work based on the scripture that unpacks this in a narrative. You have a Bible study on this that people just want to like, do you know the 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 deep dive on the individual words they go that way if people want to do both they're both available you're working on both sides of people's brains and yeah. uh um appealing to really the masses whichever way they want to go and then kind of and I also like you're just kind of sitting it on the table and saying hey study it and then let's let's talk based on what you've sure. learned not what you heard that someone else learned and, and so, I think that's that's very uh, that's treating people with respect and treating them like adults. Great, great. Um, so let me just wrap up by saying then that you know if you want to find out more about me, gadawa.com, my website, everything's on there. More information, f- cool articles, really cool stuff that you can look into it. But if you're, if you're interested in looking at the books, I, I've got a lot of heavy descriptions and everything. Everything's exclusively on Amazon. You can just go right to Amazon, find my name, and find my book series, uh, and you find a lot of descriptions there as well. They're exclusively on Amazon in paperback. Some are hardcover. Um, Kindle as well as audiobook. Um, but oh, and oh, there was some last thing I wanted to connect to that. Um, so Godot.com and Amazon. Oh, and so if you know, uh, Dave and I talked about this earlier. If people really have a high response uh, to this and want to hear more, if they really say, you know what, this is really interesting, fascinating, even if I don't agree with it. If we get a really heavy response from this, we might consider doing another episode where I launch exclusively into the book of Revelation and do a a brief summary of Revelation like like we've done here to sort of dispel a lot of the common misunderstandings of of Revelation that many futuristic Christians have. I love it. You're, you're, You're very unselfish with your time and your energy. You've been so great to work with. And, uh, this, this rare combination of brilliant and humble you know, at the same time, which is, which is refreshing. I really enjoy it. Um, guys, if you want to go back and watch the first episode that, that we did, the link will be down below. You can also go to the flyoverapp.com and it's curated there. Um, we have control over that, you know, rumble, all these things are good, but also we have our own app that can't be censored or taken away. And in all of these conversations are curated in that space as well. Um, all the links for everything we've referenced are, are down below. And, uh, Brian, I just want to thank you again for your, your time and your energy and, uh, for, for being so generous with us. We thank you very much. You got such great responses last time. People loved the conversation great. and uh, got great numbers. Guys, like this episode, share it with somebody that you respect mentally, and then uh, take them to lunch, have a conversation, and see what the two of you come up with together. And uh, again, thanks for your time again, Brian.
And thank you, Flyver family, for for being here with us today. Uh, just proud of you, you know, for sticking sticking with us and uh, taking notes, learning, investing in your your mindset, being open minded to gathering new information. I took a pile of notes from Brian today. Hope you did the exact same too. Another area that requires our attention, requires our focus, is our finances. We got to take personal ownership of it. You know, and we know this is worth about as much as the paper that it's on, probably a little bit less over time. Why? Because historically, there's never been a fiat currency that has held up over time, and they are accelerating the process to destroy it right now. You see it every time you go to the store, every time you go to buy something, you look at the prices of, of, of what things are, you know it's impacting you. A way you can avoid that and the devalued of the dollar is physical gold and silver. Silver right now is the move because of the gap between it and gold. Position you not to just survive this time, but actually do well. Somebody that can help you with that is Dr. Dr. Kirk Elliott. You can go to flyovergold.com anytime, enter your information. They'll reach out to you, set up a time for a phone call, super low pressure, just advise you, hey, what do you do if you have an IRA? What if you have cash? What if you want to do small incremental uh, investments over time and slowly transition out of fake money and into something real. Uh, those questions, they can all answer for you. You know, we've known Dr. Dr. Kirk Elliott for over 25 years. His dad was a mentor to Stacy and I when we were first married, and he has not one but two PhDs. He has one in theology and then one in economics, specifically on central banks and inflation. He's really prepared for this time that we're in, and his team is incredible at taking care of you and just answering your questions, and then the ball's in your court, and you decide what do you do next? They can make this whole process, uh, remove the mystery of it and make it easy. You can sleep at night, put your head on the pillow, exhale and know, hey, you're doing the things to prepare not just survive, but you can actually thrive uh, as things are happening right now. So go to flyovergold.com and uh, put in your information. There's free things that you can get there and look at and uh, just get a consultation. Uh, appreciate you being here with us. Like and share this episode. And uh, I will be back here each and every Saturday with an incredible author and uh, thought leader uh, to kind of help us all grow and get better. Lock arms. We're in this together. We'll see you back here again next Saturday. Thank you, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Flyover Conservatives podcast with David and Stacey Whited. Please subscribe, hit the notification bell, and leave us a comment below. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, share with those who came to mind. Be blessed and make it a great day. Yeah.